John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. So there's really been no mystery about what film John and I are digging into this week. We've actually known we were doing The Godfather for almost a year, and we even announced it in a live stream way back in September. It and its sequel are not only among our most requested films, but they are without question two of the most important movies in the history of cinema. The 70s was a tremendous decade for film, and perhaps no director exemplifies that decade, its passion, artistry, madness, and excess, more than Francis Ford Coppola. In a way, Coppola is the godfather of an entire generation of filmmakers, and this film, based on the Mario Puzo bestseller, manages to be at once personal and grand, a window into an experience which is both uniquely Italian and quintessentially American. It brings together the great actor of the previous age, Marlon Brando, with some of the greatest actors of the next, Pacino, Duvall, James Caan, and of course, John Cassale. Listed as number two on the latest AFI 100, The Godfather fundamentally changed not only gangster films, but the art of filmmaking itself. So if you haven't seen this groundbreaking movie, The Cinephiles is going to make you an offer you can't refuse to buy or stream The Godfather through Amazon Prime on our website, cinephiles.net. And if you are part of our family on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, right now you could be listening to John and I talk about the kind of kids we were in high school. Trust me, this is a short you won't want to miss. So, that's a short of our high school years on Patreon and part one of The Godfather this Friday on The Cinephiles. So the next day, my father went to see him, only this time with Luca Brazzi. And within an hour, he signed a release for a certified check of $1,000. How did he do that? My father made him an offer he couldn't refuse. What was that? Luca Brazzi held a gun to his head, and my father assured him that either his brains or his signature would be on the contract. That's a true story. 
That's my family, Katie. It's not me. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where we are continuing our epic exploration of the films and life of Francis Ford Coppola. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host over on the Outlaw Nation, VO Guy, and incredibly excited to be finally, after years of doing this show, diving into a series that is arguably my favorite series a director is one of my favorite directors uh, and um, an experience like no other and giving it the cinephiles treatment here on the show. I'm excited. I mean, this has been one of our most requested films of all time, yes. um, both Godfather one and two. And I have to say, you know, we talked about this before. There's some movies where I always do my prep. Yeah. But there's some movies like. You know, we did Brian's song. Mm-hmm. We did, uh, you know, there are a lot of movies where it's like, yeah, I did some prep, but I didn't really care. This movie, yeah. <laughs> I didn't mess around. I mean, this is, a, you know, we want to do this thing right. It's been requested over and over again, including by uh, Matt Correa, who would been his request on Patreon forever. And so, of course, you and I are going to talk about it, yeah. but I'd like to hear why Matt wanted the cinephiles to discuss The Godfather. What's up, guys? This is Matt from Miami, Florida, and thank you guys so much for doing these movies. The reason that I chose these movies, Godfather 1 and 2, is that they're the reasons that I became a cinephile. The cast, the direction, this is honestly the magnum opus of the modern era. Thank you guys so much for doing this month. It's about time. Okay. Powerful words from Matt Korea for sure. Clearly a film that affected him a lot. John, do you remember how you first came to this film? Oh, yeah, man. Um, I, this was my father's, one of my father's favorite films. And I think when he started to understand that I was a movie guy, this became scheduled viewing. And I remember that we rented it from, um, the local video store could have been video world or one of those places around us, uh, and brought it home and we sat down and we watched it together. And I just remember being completely blown away by this movie. I think it was 15 when I saw it for the first time and just flabbergasted at what this film was. Uh, and, you know, this was, it was around that time and I'm starting to understand what film is. And I would return to it over and over and over again uh, for so many reasons, for the quotability of it all, for the performances, for my love of Brando, um, and also doing deep dives on the research behind the movie, like what was involved, some of the analysis, the idea of the orange indicating death, all the numbers around it, the X's, things. Oh, there was so much around this movie that grew in legend and lore every single time. But that first time I saw it, um, it's one of those moments where you just kind of, after it's done, you just kind of sit through the credits in awe of what you've just witnessed. And if you're any kind of cinephile, it immediately affects you. I'll tell you what's weird. I don't have a clear memory of when I first saw it mm. because I think I first saw it in pieces. Oh, okay. You know, I think I, I know it was on TV. Yeah. I know it was at, you know, my house. I remember sitting on the couch, but I don't remember. Like, I remember at a certain point seeing the opening scene mm-hmm. and having not seen it before. So I think, like, I saw, you know, the middle to the end yeah. and then I saw different parts of it. And so it was sometime later in high school where I really sat down and watched the whole thing beginning to end. 
And and it's so funny. It's I've always loved this film. Mm-hmm. I've always thought it was a great film, and it is one that has just gotten better and yep. better and better every time I watch it. It's, it's so damn good. And Steve, it's one of those films that when you take enough far enough away from it, you go, could it still be as good as I? And then you watch it, you're like, yeah, damn well is it. Damn well, watching it for this uh, show uh, for this episode. I was just transfixed again about the the quality of this movie. Uh, and there have been multiple iterations of it, extended editions, the coda, all of these things that have happened around uh, Godfather 1 and 2, and then 3, of course, eventually. But, like, they've connected this thing. You know, even TV had a... When they first debuted on TV 1 and 2, they connected them and put them in chronological order. Right. So you're starting in 2 and ending at the end of 1. which is And then back to 2, of course. Well, and that, by the way, this is a spoiler alert for a few weeks from now when we do yep. Godfather 2. That's how I first saw Godfather 2. Oh, wow. <laughs> I saw the, the chronological <laughs> version before I saw the real movie. Oh, damn. Really? Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, this was the you know, yeah. the mid-80s, early 80s. I didn't, you didn't have control over what you saw. Very it true. was just, this was on. Yeah. Um, uh, and, then, and maybe that also is part of why the very first viewing is a little jumbled in my mind Mm. you know because i think i saw that fairly early maybe even before i sat down and watched you know in in later high school or early college where i really really focused on watching the godfather Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so john before we get going on this i have a question for you sure this is a question i would like to ask you now and then i would like to revisit this question at the conclusion (laughs) Of our Godfather exploration. And this question is... So six weeks from now. Okay. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Which movie do you like better? Uh, you know, um, uh, when I first became a cinephile, it was definitely Godfather, right? I felt Godfather 2 was at times a bit too expansive. I wasn't always the biggest fan of the Johnny Ola and the stuff in Miami. But as I got older and I understood really what was so um, important about Godfather Part Two and how it connected up into our country's history and actually the real history of Murder, Inc. and Meyer Lansky and all of that, then it took on a whole nother level for me. And so I've always, now I'm very solid in the camp that Godfather Two is better than Godfather One for me because the task is harder. Bringing in Robert De Niro to play a young Vito Corleone at the same time as you ever Michael continue his story and get older, and you're fleshing out both these stories at the same time. Oh, and throwing in this idea of Michael expanding out into Cuba, this idea of wanting to go legitimate, all of that uh, just carries more weight uh, for me now. Uh, but it's not by much, but it certainly is the, the film I prefer to watch when I'm if I'm going to choose between the two. See, I'm really curious <sighs> about this for me. I've always liked Godfather more than Godfather 2, but partially is because I find it easier, you know? Like, I love the Vito stuff. I love the De Niro stuff. That's, that, you know, really enjoyable as much as there's some dark stuff in it, but Mm -hmm. the Michael stuff is so hard, and I think I've watched, I've probably watched Godfather twice as many times as Godfather Mm 2. And so, like, I'm really curious after doing this serious weeks and weeks of, you know, delving into these things, yeah. how I'm going to feel when we come out the other side. Mm. Because I know so many people who like you say, look, the the real impressive movie is two, not one. And I, yeah. and I understand it, but I've never been drawn to two in the same way. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm kind of going like, how is my opinions and feelings about these things going to change? Right. 
It may also be too, uh, Steve, because that uh, Francis Ford Coppola's approach to two was he was uh, upset that people liked Michael Corleone, revered Michael Corleone, kind of like Gordon Gecko was revered out of Wall Street when he was supposed to be the villain in that movie, and so he went, he doubled down on the evilness of Michael, on the coldness of Michael, and, and on. I mean, the fact that he, he kills his own brother, he slaps his wife after an abortion. Like it's the the men he kills, the way he treats, the way he sets up that senator by sacrificing this poor young prostitute. Like he is brutal in his desire to achieve success and overall um, uh, power under the guise of trying to go legitimate. Right? He even almost alienates uh, Tom Hagen. So it's right. like the, uh, throughout the whole movie, he is even more brutal. When in the first one, there are redeeming qualities to Michael in the first one. You know, I have to reassess what you asked me in the first part, the idea of does Michael really care about somebody? Rewatching Grandfather 1, you, I, I was wrong. Like, it's uh, he has genuine affection for Kay. He has genuine affection for his brother. He's really hurt by uh, what's happened to his dad. So all of it is there. It just slowly dies as he becomes more and more powerful because he sees that emotion as weakness. And he can't have it uh, in his position, you know? And so I think he doubles down on it in the second film and Coppola certainly steers it that way. I totally agree. And it, but that's what's going to be so interesting is we got, I mean, obviously, we got a long journey to go on. We got a yeah, long way yeah. to go. Um, but I'll tell you in this, the last time of watching Godfather, I saw more of the, uh, I saw more of that evil side. Yep. You know, and th- I think that's one of the things that makes these such great films is that you watch them again and you see new things. And you always see, you never stop seeing new things. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Sometimes I say words like little bit of pre production. <laughs> That is not what I'm going to say this time. There's a lot of stories. It's very oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, but of course, we got to start with Mario Puzo. He had written two books. Mm-hmm. They were very well reviewed, and they didn't make him any money. Yeah, he was doing magazine work. He wasn't very happy with it, and he basically told his agent, his wife, his family, his mom. He said, "You know what? I'm going to write a bestseller." He just decided to write a bestseller <laughs> and he decided to do it over the most sensational material he could think of, which was the mafia. He, he had no experience with the mob. He had not, he didn't met any of these people and he chose not to meet any of these people. This was all done through research, not personal experience. Um, and this is what happened. He writes his first draft. He sends his first draft off to his agent and says, show this to nobody. <laughs> and he goes to Europe totally on like, gets a whole bunch of traveler's checks on credit, takes his family, (laughs) sounds like he had a great time, (laughs) blew all his money. He's a big gambler, by the way. He he lost every time. So now not only is he broke, but he's deep in debt. Comes back home, calls his agent. His agent, and first thing he hears is his, not only did his agent disobey him and send the book out, but he had already turned down an offer of $350,000 for the book. Wow. Wow. Yeah, they finally sold it for $410,000. And then Paramount, who was uh, really in deep trouble at the time, this is right when it had been bought by Golf Golf and Western. We talked about this when we talked about Chinatown. Bob Evans is put in charge, and they buy the book, I think, for uh, $80,000. They Mm. bought the rights. Mm. So, And this is before the book came out. So he has gone from broke and actually deeply in debt to suddenly selling the book for 410 grand and 80 grand on top of that for the movie rights. Wow. 
I mean, that's just crazy. Have yeah. you have you read the read the book? Oh yeah, way? absolutely. I mean, as soon as I <clears throat> watched the movie, I went and rented it from the library and watched and read it. I really enjoyed it too. And I got into the other Mario Puzo stuff, The Last Dawn, which was kind of a, and then the Sicilian, which was a terrible Christopher Lambert movie. But I but this was such a great book. This is one of those books that matches the movie. You can go either way and enjoy the experience in in both mediums. It, it, it's funny. I read it years ago, mm. and then I read it again just in the last few weeks yeah. in preparation for this. And I had very much the same experience that Coppola had, which is that Coppola, the first time he read it, he hated it. Not mm. hated it. But he's like, this is a lot of sensationalist stuff. And there's all sorts of stories which we'll talk about that are not in the movie, which are really good that they're not in the movie. Yeah. Um, but I, that's kind of how I felt. I was like, oh, it's, it's good, but there's all this stuff that I didn't like. Mm-hmm. And then Coppola read it the second time and went, oh, there's a great, great story in here and great, great characters. And if you just trim away some of the other stuff, it emerges. And the second time reading it, I totally saw that. Mm-hmm. All, the, all the bones of the movie are really in the book. Yeah. They're really there. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, Bob Evans assigns the producer who we just talked about, Al Ruddy, the producer of Million Dollar Baby, mm. is the guy who shepherded the godfather mm-hmm. um and and now two things happen one is that paramount is suddenly doing better because they put love story out which is a huge huge picture right. and, it, and now they're finally in the black after a lot of problems and the book comes out and it is a massive massive bestseller beyond what anyone could have imagined 67 weeks <laughs> on the bestseller list wow nine million copies in two years <laughs> that is just crazy yeah and so they hire Puzo to write a script for a hundred grand. So now he got his four ten, then his eighty grand to sell the rights, and now he's getting a hundred grand to write the script. Puzo's doing great. Yeah. Unfortunately, he likes to write in Vegas at the casino, and when he gets stuck, he goes down and plays roulette. So I don't know how far ahead he ended up. Um, and he writes a script, one hundred fifty pages. It stays very, very close to the book. It sounds like it wasn't a terribly good script because he's not a screenwriter. And now it's time to go find that director. And so who do they go to? Sergio Leone. Yeah, makes sense. Why not? Yeah, perfect sense. But he turns it down Mm -hmm. because he's about to do Once Upon a Time in America. So he doesn't want to do it. So then they go to Peter Bogdanovich. He's a big director at the time. He wanted to make What's Up, Doc? So he turns it down. By the way, had he done it, he said, I, I would only do it if we get Edward G. Robinson to play Vito Corleone. Ooh, I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, that would be really interesting. Because people forget how good of an actor Edward G. Robinson is. See his stuff outside of like uh, uh, the Little Caesar or whatever. If you watch him in Key Largo or you watch him mm. uh, in a couple other films or uh, what's the uh, Double Indemnity, he's sure. really, really good. So I mean, this idea that he's just one thing, don't. But he's also, but he's also exactly what Hollywood has put forward as a gangster, right? Right. You know, he's the classic Hollywood gangster. But it could it could have worked as kind of a Clint Eastwood thing, turning the trope, mm. using the Western classic sure. Western actor to turn the tropes and the cliches on its head in a in a film that exposes those cliches for what they were. Um, and then they go to basically all the big directors of the time. They go to Arthur Penn. They go to Otto, Otto Preminger. They go to Elia Kazan. Mm. All of them turn it down. And finally, Evans decides, you know what? We need to get an Italian-American director. Because basically, all those mob movies, 
and most of Hollywood, let's face it, were mostly directed by, made by, and even starring Jews, not wow. Italians. Oh, yeah. You know, including Edward G. Robinson, by the way. He's Jewish. There you go. Um, and, 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 and they, Paramount itself had just had a huge, huge bomb, which is a movie called The Brotherhood, yeah. directed by Martin Ritt, Jewish, yeah. and starring Kirk Douglas, Kirk Douglas, also Jewish. Yeah. Yeah, no bomb um, movies had really made or been these big hits, right? You had in the past... You had like Scarface and Public Enemies and and Little Caesar and all those, but those were anomalies. They they didn't really rely on the gangster film as a genre at this point to be something that would accrue best picture Oscars. You know, this so the, the approach to this genre. People forget the approach to this genre was completely different in like the early seventies before this film was made than it is now with something like The Sopranos and Goodfellas and Scorsese's you know whole resume for the most part. You know, there's there's a lot more reverence. There's a lot more expectations for a mafia film or a mafia TV show now. Well, and I think, I mean, it was a genre. Warner Brothers made lots of gangster movies, mm-hmm. but it's a B genre. Right, it's exactly. a B genre. Yeah, like you know, that. like, um, and, and, you know, and all those movies you just named in Sopranos and all that stuff, I don't think any of that happens without The Godfather. Absolutely. A thousand percent. Yeah. yeah. So now they go, let's, we want an Italian American director. Let's get someone that works cheap. We've already spent enough money. And so they go uh, and go after uh, Coppola, who just directed The Rain People. As I said, didn't like the book, found it sensationalist and sleazy. Um, By the way, the day that Al Ruddy called him up and said, we offered him the job of The Godfather. He got his very first interaction with Marlon Brando. Oh, wow. I never knew this. Brando called him that day. He'd never met him to turn down the lead in the conversation, which is the movie that Coppola wanted to make next. Wow. Was he going to play the Gene Hackman part? Gene Hackman. Really? Yeah. Damn. That was his, that was, that was Coppola's first choice for the conversation. Mm. By the way, Brando was also Mario Puzo's first choice long before Coppola was involved. Mm. As soon as he sold the rights to Paramount, he said, Marlon Brando should play Vito Corleone. And Paramount said, no way, never going to happen. Brando is not going to be in this movie. Yeah. For those of you who (laughs) are not historians of film or historians, like Brando at this point in his career is toxic. Brando at this point. There's issues uh, all through the 60s, the last tango in Paris, all of these issues that are rolling through with him. And so he's talked to, he's box office poison, according to a lot of people at this time, even though it was the time of the auteur in the 70s. Brando was considered who a lot of people idolized growing up and getting into movies. He was considered box office poison. So, you know, he was not their first choice. And Coppola, when it was his choice, had to fight tooth and nail to get Brando to be in the film. Well, that's what we're going to hear over and over again. Coppola had to fight tooth and nail. Yeah. He, it's it's, the whole movie is him fighting. Mm -hmm. So he says, no, I don't want to do this Godfather movie. And he's up, of course, in the Bay area is working on American Zoetrope. And they are in deep, deep trouble as they are pretty much forever. Uh, they had just made uh, THX 1138, which is George Lucas's first film, which is weird. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not going to be on the cinephiles anytime soon. <laughs> no. um, and they are $400,000 in debt. And George Lucas goes up to Francis and says, Francis, take the gig. (laughs) We we need money. (laughs) We kind of need the money. (laughs) And of course, at first, Francis, who wants to make personal films and artistic films, he looks at this on his first read of The Godfather and says, this is exactly what I don't want to do. 
But then on his second read, just like I did, he went, oh, wait, no, there's something here. He takes the deal. Uh, he gets paid $125,000 plus 6% of the gross. Mm. Little and, did and of he course, know. <laughs> Paramount didn't think this was going to be. Nobody thought this is going to be a hit. Um, initial budget is $2.5 million. And the studio wants it shot naturally on location in Kansas City. <laughs> And contemporary. This they want to move it from a '40s movie to a '70s movie, in, <laughs> '40s movie in New York to a '70s movie in Kansas City. And this is the first fight. This is one of the first yeah. fight. Coppola's like, no, it has to be a period piece, and we have to shoot it in New York. Yeah. Um, and he's like, this relates to the emergence of the new America of capitalism of America on the new stage after world war II, there's a huge difference in Michael Corleone coming home as a veteran of world war II than if it was contemporary. Cause then he's coming home from Vietnam. Yeah. And that's just different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and of course at this moment, Patton hasn't come out yet. Yeah. He's writing the script. Um, and, uh, and now the book starts to become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And now they're going, maybe we could spend a little more than two and a half million. <laughs> and the budget starts going up. And so Coppola starts to get his way. And now there's the Puzo script. And now Coppola starts working on a script. And it sounds like there are a lot of stories in Hollywood where, you know, there's a lot of different people writing scripts and it's a lot of bad blood. That doesn't sound like it was the case. It right. sounds like they were each writing, they'd send each other drafts, they'd send each other notes on drafts. And it was, I don't, it's, they say it was relatively simpatico. Yeah. That might also be, you know, what they say. <laughs> um, and Coppola, this is what he did, which is so interesting. Um, and, and you can see pictures of this and you can even read, he's put out the, the, the Godfather notebook. Mm -hmm. What he did uh, is he made a book that's like a stage manager's book. It's called a prompt book. And I was a stage professional stage manager. That was my first like pro theater gigs, you know, when I was in college. And what you do is you take the script and you like take basically two copies of the page and you tape it to an eight and a half by 11 page. So you have a big white paper around it and the little script in the middle. And then you flip it over and you have the other side of the page. Mm. And he talked about Coppola talked a lot about, you know, how carefully he did this. And he double reinforced all the holes in the three ring binder. And he lovingly built this it takes a while over time. And he took every single page of the book and made this prompt book out of it. And then he sat at, in Cafe Trieste in North Beach in San Francisco, which is like home of the beat poets. I mean, it's, you know, this is the, this is where Ginsburg and all those guys hung out and started working on not the script, but the book. And yeah. he took notes and he underlined things and put things in the margins and it's pages and pages of the notes. And what he did was he wrote a synopsis of each scene and also was figuring out this scene is not going to be in the movie. Mm -hmm. And ask the question of why is this scene important? And this is the thing he got from Elliot Kazan, who believed that every scene had a core idea in the middle of it, and that's why the scene is in the movie. Mm. What's so crazy, and is I never heard this before, and yet this is what, in particular, in the last two years of teaching directing, this is basically what I what I've discovered. Mm -hmm. You know, because I would continually ask my students. What is this scene about? What is it about? And they, I can't tell you how often I would just get total blank faces. Which is mind-blowing, yeah. Because that's that's the first thing you learn in acting is what is the scene about? What are the objectives of the scene? Yep. Uh, and I even had a teacher 
in Florida State, who's a very good uh, drama teacher, who said every scene is about some form of sex, <laughs> which means you're you're trying to get something here, something mm-hmm. from the scene. And it could be mental sex, physical sex. It could be relationship sex. It is some form of a desire that you have. And that's what it is. Every person in the scene has to have a desire for something. And the overall desire is the point of the scene. And so it's just like, so it's fascinating just the directing students are just kind of staring at you blankly because that seems so second nature. But of course, two different, you know, me, uh, two different approaches to creativity, right? So, yeah. Well, well, and they, and they're writing, it's so funny. Uh, they're writing just a story. Well, it's in here because that's what happens. Yeah, right. And it's like, well, yeah, but why? Right. Like, why is this important? Because right. that's how you get, just as you say, how could I talk to, if I was directing you, yeah. how could I talk to you as an actor if I didn't have some sense of your motivation and right. what you were trying to do? Like, there's nothing to talk about. Yeah. You know? And I would imagine a lot of the friction between early directors and early actors are uh, directors going, no, just do it. And I was, no, what's the reason for me doing it? I can't give you the performance you want if you don't tell me why I need to be doing these things. Yeah, I don't I'm know sure why I'm walking over there. Yeah, I don't know why I'm trying to get this thing. <laughs> I'm sure directors um, are like, just fucking walk over there. Just walk over there. <laughs> so then he, he, so he wrote down a synopsis. He wrote down uh, the era. He said he wanted every scene to be specifically mm. linked to this year, this time and place. He wrote down notes about imagery and tone. What is... What do I want to see in this scene? He wrote down, and I think this is so important, he wrote down pitfalls. And he it, what could go wrong in doing the scene and what could go wrong doing the whole movie? And here are some of the general ones. Cliché dialogue. Yeah. He didn't want any of the dialogue to sound like someone wrote it for a gangster movie. Familiar settings. He did he wanted it to he wanted to take people to settings they'd never been to before. Always use specifics and in particular personal specifics. Mm-hmm. So that things had to come out of his life and his family. And then he wrote, don't lose the humanity. And I think you watch The Godfather and it's clear that he didn't. Yep. I think that's one of the, these people are so real and so well developed. Mm -hmm. And of course he said, avoid too much exposition, which is, you know, the great bane of all screenwriters is how do I get the audience to understand what's happening without just telling them? Yeah. And he had a color coding system. So things for imagery was one color and things for character things was another color and the synopsis was another color. And what you could tell is the more important the scene, the more colors and notes the page had on it. (laughs) And uh, I'll give you a guess of what scene in this movie had the most notes. Oh, my God. Um, Oh. Oh, the uh, shooting of uh, of uh, the police chief uh, by yep. Michael Salazzo yep. and Mikoski. That is the yep. scene, yep. and uh, and it's so obvious that that is the key turning point of the film. It's the fulcrum of the movie, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And of course, we're going to talk a lot about it when we get to it. Mm-hmm. And here's the big thing: this is what finally sold him on doing this book. Is when he went at the core of this. This is the story of a king with three sons. Mm-hmm. And each son inherited a different part of his personality. Mm-hmm. Sonny inherited his violence. His heart and sensitivity was inherited by Fredo. And the cold genius was inherited by Michael. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the big word, the one word for the whole movie is succession. Oh, this how is funny. a movie. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, considering there's a show now now on HBO. Yeah. Which do you, do you watch it? I've heard it's amazing. I've heard it's. I've watched the first episode, but there are shades, obviously, because it's a you know, he's a little more active and a little more of a flawed king in, that uh, is being played there by Brian Cox. But I could see the similarities absolutely. Maybe that was the motivation for the title of the show. So Paramount asked for a script that was 120 pages. <laughs> the first script that, that Puzo and, and Coppola delivered is 173. <laughs> they cut it down to 163. That's as short as they could get. Mm. Um, as you mentioned, Coppola had to fight for Brando. And Paramount was like, no way. We're not doing it. They wanted Ernest Borgnine. And they also, the other person really in the running was Danny Thomas. Yeah, yeah. Who Which... apparently was going to buy Paramount <laughs> to do this part. <laughs> He's going to pull his own Godfather move. I'm going to buy the studio and put myself in it. Yeah. Because, <laughs> by the way, you, you you know, most people listening probably don't know this. Danny Thomas was real powerful yep. at this era. Yep. Um, here are three other names they considered for Vito, and I think you will be interested in all three of them. Maybe you already knew them. George C. Scott, mm-hmm. Anthony Quinn, mm. and Orson Welles. Yeah. There's an alternate timeline where Coppola directs Wells as Vito Corleone, and either it's Can't imagine. E- either it's the greatest train wreck you've ever heard of in your entire yeah. life, or the greatest film ever made, period, by miles. I just have a feeling because I can't imagine Wells and Coppola, two alpha males with distinct points of views and strong points of views about how a film should be directed, working together without fireworks. I just don't see how it would be possible. Yeah, I, I, I mean, well, and the thing is, this is one of those roles where Brando is. Corleone. That's, yeah. yeah, that's just it. I, I, I mean, these everyone we've mentioned, mm-hmm. including Ernest Borgnine. I don't know about Danny Thomas, but everyone else we've mentioned are like these are really interesting actors. Yeah, certainly. You know. Yeah. Um, and then finally, and, and again, Coppola just keeps pushing. He's just not quitting. And, and they finally say, okay, maybe Brando can do it if he works very cheap. Mm-hmm. He puts up a million dollar bond. Yeah, insurance. Yeah, and he does a screen test. And a screen test. That's the one. And you're just like, you're going to make Brando screen test? You're going to well, make Brando screen put up a million test. dollars of his own money. Uh, that I can accept because Brando was like Lindsay Lohan at the time. You know, as, as, as the people didn't really trust him and he was getting into some situations there. And so they were like trying to protect their investment. So I can understand that. But the screen test, that's where I draw the line, man. Well, and, and I love Coppola's responses. He says, sure, no problem. I'll get Brando to do that. And he knows he's never going to get all of it, but he figured if he agrees, yeah. he can keep the conversation going. Right. And then if he gets him, then he can renegotiate later on. Right. Of course, he doesn't tell Brando he's going to do a screen test. <laughs> he tells Brando you're going to do a makeup test. Yeah. And I'm sure you've heard the story. This is a very famous story. He goes to Brando's house. He's heard that Brando doesn't like a lot of loud noises, so he has all his crew. They're all only going to use sign language. They're not going to speak. He brings lots of little Italian cheeses and sausages and glass of wine and things just so Brando has some things to play with. Yeah. They show up. There's Brando in a robe, long blonde hair, <laughs> looking because Brando's 47. Yeah, that's all he is, ladies and gentlemen. He is 47. I will say this. Maybe I'll get in trouble. He's younger than Steve and I at this point when he plays oh, yeah. the Godfather. Insane. Yeah. And, and, and Coppola described, he looks like a surfer god mm-hmm. at this moment. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, apparent this is the transformation. He pulls his hair back. He puts some shoe polish in it. He starts walking around, starts picking up the little bits of food and starts saying, I think he would talk kind of like this. And then he grabs some Kleenex and he sticks them in his mouth and, and turns around. And there's Vito Corleone. Yeah, man. And that's a master at work. That's a master at work. Regardless of your feelings about Brando and the things he's done or whatever, that's a master at work, a genius. And it must have been phenomenal for Coppola to be in the room and to watch magic happen like that. You know? It's so, it's so crazy how, how how I think about time differently now than I did when I was younger. Mm. Because when I was younger, on the waterfront, which we did on the show, is 1954. Yeah, this is 1971, so it's 17 years later. Yeah. Which when I was a kid, that seemed like a really long time. <laughs> and now that doesn't seem like that long. That's 2003. That yeah. didn't seem that long ago. True. Um. And they show the film to Paramount and just Paramount goes, when he says, I'm going to show you the screen test of Marlon Brando. And they go, Brando will never get this part. <laughs> and he shows it. That was Coppola's voice that he used when he's telling the story. And he shows it to him and they go, that is the most amazing thing I've seen. You know, and suddenly Brando's got the gig. Yeah. And then, uh, and I'll talk about some of the other, ca- we'll talk about some of the other casting when we get to the, mm. some of these people. But the next thing he did was he gets Duval, Pacino, uh, Jimmy Kahn, and uh, Talia Shire. They're all up in the Bay Area. They're staying with Coppola. They're improving. They're taking home movies. And then they do a big dinner with Marlon Brando, mm. with Talia Shire serving food, because that's what she was doing, a big soup-to-nuts Italian meal, the whole thing. And they put Brando at the head of the table, James Kahn on one side, Al Pacino on the other side. Robert Duvall sitting there, and it sounds like all of them just fell into those characters, mm-hmm. you know? I imagine um, John Cazale would have been there as well. Yes, he was there yeah, too. Yeah. Sorry. And uh, and they just, like, Al Pacino's, you know, the way Coppola describes it, he's trying to impress Brando with his sensitivity and intensity and Jimmy is trying to impress him with his jokes and big personality. Robert Duvall is quietly mocking Marlon Brando <laughs> from across the table. Yeah. Can you imagine being there? Oh, I would love it. I would have loved it to be honest with you. I mean, that's everybody in the room is incredibly talented and has left a legacy in film. That's rare to find Steve. That's rare, to, especially because they're all so young and starting out, you know, I mean, these are, titan actors well and they're with the greatest actor of his age Mm -hmm. and these are some of the greatest actors of the next age yeah 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 i I, it's it's so remarkable all the things that are in this movie yep and and the cast being just one of them Mm -hmm. that's what i say this is one of those movies that the movie itself is great but all the stories around it are as equally great uh and that you can't say that for a lot of classic films speaking of it Would you like to go back to 1945 New York and enter the world of The Godfather? I love America. So, yes. Well, and and we start in the black and we hear that incredible theme. And we see right at the beginning Mario Puzo's The Godfather, which was not in Puzo's contract. Oh, wow. That is Coppola's idea. Mm -hmm. And he says he did that ever since. So that's why that's why we saw Bram Stoker's Dracula is that he wanted those authors to get their credit. What a difference than Wells. But go ahead. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then we get to just what you say. I believe in America. I believe in America. It's one of the great openings of a movie you know, of all time. I tell you something, Steve. This, 
speech, monologue in essence, that is delivered this time in 2020 and what we're dealing with politically, what we're dealing with in our world, it struck me that this could be any of the disenfranchised minorities, the complaints that we've seen, the injustice of the justice system uh, towards certain people um, uh, because of the color of their skin or because of the fact that they're quote unquote real Americans versus immigrants or foreigners. It really struck me this time in a way that has never struck me before. I've always understood the point of the scene being the son of immigrants. How can you not? But, this just carried extra weight this time around, which surprised me, to be honest with you. For, for me, too. I had very much the same reaction. Mm-hmm. And the thing, and I'm, and, and I'm going to hit it many times as we go through this film. Yeah. The Bob Evans choice of we should have an Italian-American direct this movie. Mm-hmm. I just kind of went, yeah, OK, you know, for years. And this time, because we have this idea today of inclusion. Yeah. And why is it important to have people who have that experience actually making the movie about that experience. And it's not that there weren't really good gangster movies made by those Jews in the 30s and 40s. They were good movies. It's not that Edward G. Robinson or James Cagney didn't play good gangsters or or Bogart. They're awesome. Right. But they could never do this because they never lived this life. Yeah. Just from the face of this actor who is Salvatore Corsito, this is like an actor you've never seen on screen before. And the guts to put so many talented people in the movie, Steve, and you lead with a, in essence, like 25th on the call sheet actor and and base your opening moment of your movie on this man's monologue. It, it's, it's such like a, a gutsy decision, man. It's like, a, I, should, I didn't time it, but it's a three, four, five minute monologue. Oh, yeah. It's you know, delivered cool. And and we said, and by the way, we've already talked about this monologue and how it came to be here when we did Patton. Yes. Because what happened was the opening scene in the movie in the script was the wedding. Mm-hmm. And then one of Coppola's buddies came along and said, you know what? That opening of Patton you did, that was really cool. I think you should do something like that for this. And he remembered this character, Bonacera, who's in the book yeah. and this story. And he goes, oh, let's start with that. And man, we start in just this close up in the black. And the camera pulls back, and we hear this immigrant story. America has made my fortune, and I raised my daughter in the American fashion. And what I love about it is he loves America. He does. Yes. As many, many immigrants do. We love my parents. The people who are immigrants love this country. They come to this country to be a part of the myth, or the fabric, rather, of America because of the myth that they've been told. Of what America is, what it symbolizes, and so they well, and, run, especially at this time, you know. Well, and it is a it is an amazing place. Yes, you know the lives my ancestors had here versus the lives they would have had in Germany yeah. is as Jews is like completely different. Oh yeah. Yes, there's obviously problems of with of of how we've treated immigrants consistently throughout mm-hmm. this country, but we've also you know. Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. We've also given these opportunities. And this man, you know, he says that he raised his daughter in the American fashion. He wanted her to assimilate. Yes. And then she meets an American boyfriend. Not an Italian. Not an Italian. She goes out to movies with him. And I love that he says, I didn't protest. I didn't protest. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then two months ago, he took her for a drive with another boyfriend. They made her drink whiskey and they tried to take advantage of her. And his performance is so good. Mm-hmm. She resisted. She kept her honor. 
so they beat her like an animal. And as this is happening, the camera is just slowly, slowly pulling back. It's all in one shot, which ain't easy for this actor. No. You know, he's sitting there. He's sitting there with Brando. Brando. And he has to give this huge monologue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a lot. And Steve, as a director, I would argue, uh, you would, and please correct me. Normally in a monologue, the way that this is written, where it builds on the drama as the monologue goes along, you start away. And, and push move in. closer and push Absolutely. in so that you feel the pain of this man deep in your bones, but that they pull away or Coppola pulls away is such an interesting decision that so works. Well, and, and because it's he's doing something completely different mm. is because this is not a main character in the movie. Yeah. And what we're starting with him and he is pulling us into this world. And so as we pull back and back, we're starting to see the space that we're in. Mm. And we, we should talk, by the way, the the cinematographer is Gordon Willis. Yeah known as the Prince of Darkness because he got blacks to be as black as black can be. And the darkness in this film, particularly in this scene, is something that had really never been seen in film like this before, particularly on color film. Yeah. Um, what, one of the things you do um, when you're exposing your film, you could have what's called detail in the black. And what that basically means is I shoot a shot and you you know you see like like John is looking at me right now and there's the TV behind me and that looks black. Mm-hmm. If you took a picture of this and then you in post and you could do it on your iPhone or something, turn up the exposure, suddenly you would see details in that black that you mm-hmm. couldn't see before. So there's always some range, and there's also at the top end there's details in the white. So if you lower the exposure, you could see some details when things were blown out. Mm-hmm. Gordon Willis shot this so dark, there were no details in the black. Mm-hmm. You, there was no way – so that it, and the reason they did it this way is they didn't want Paramount later on going, this is too dark. Let's bring it up. Yeah. There is nothing there. It is. It doesn't exist. That is how <laughs> black the black is in much of this movie. When I went to the hospital, her nose was broken. Her jaw was shattered, held together by wire. Which is interesting because that's what happens to Michael later on yeah. in the film. She couldn't even weep. Because of the pain, but I wept. Why did I weep? She was the light of my life. And now, suddenly, this shot that is pulling back and back is now in an over-the-shoulder. And we see the hand of Marlon Brando. It's just, it's so brilliant how they do this. And you even see just, and this is why Brando's a great actor, is even with his hand when he gestures to give him a drink, Mm. is great acting. I went to the police. Like a good American. These two boys were brought to trial. The judge sentenced them to three years in prison and suspend the sentence. Suspend the sentence. They walked out that very day. Those bastards, they smiled at me. And that's the frustration again of the immigrant experience, the black experience, the person of color experience towards what would you assume would be these white Americans in 19, white American teenagers in 1950 or whatever it's set, 1940s, uh, uh, getting away with doing this to a young woman. And because she's a foreigner, you know, because she's well, a daughter of immigrants, rather. We, we, we literally, the last film we did was Mississippi Burning. This exact thing happens in Mississippi right. Burning, where they suspend the sentence of these guys that beat up this kid. Yep. And... In our world today, you know, there was the Stanford student who raped the woman in yeah. the alley and right. got 
and he was a white wealthy guy got no you know no a very small punishment and yep. you see you know we've seen it just recently yep african-american who steals a candy bar gets seven years yep then i said to my wife for justice we must go to don corleone and this is now we get brando yeah and this is great because we hear his name and then we see him it's a great reveal oh such a great reveal by the way marlon brando's holding a little cat a kitten in this scene that was something according to coppola he just saw this cat and handed it to him yep it was totally improv <laughs> And and Brando, the stuff he does, because you don't know what the cat's going to do, is great. Why didn't you go to the police? Why didn't you come to me first? And Bonus Sarah doesn't want to answer. He says, What do you want from me? Tell me anything. What do what I beg you to do? He doesn't say it out loud. He walks up. He whispers in his ear. And then we see the pull, the camera pulls back, and you see for the you see Brando and all his power kind of lean back and pull a little bit away from the guy because he's 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 legitimately uh offended or insulted mm -hmm. that this guy uh would come and ask such a thing and whisper it in his ear and not understand he's asking for them to be killed in essence and he in essence looks as at the godfather as hired gun a hired yep. gun and that is so offensive to what Corleone, Vito Corleone has built the empire he has built. He's not a common hitman, you know? Well, and this is the thing is that Bonacera, he wants to be an American. Yep. He he has chosen to not be in the world of the Godfather because because mm -hmm. Vito says... We've known each other many years, but this is the first time he ever came to me for counsel for help. I can't remember the last time that he invited me to your house for a cup of coffee. Even though my wife is godmother to your only child. But let's be frank, you, you never wanted my friendship. And uh, you were afraid to be in my debt. I didn't want to get into trouble. Yeah. yeah. Bonus Sarah didn't want to be a part of this. Right, but but this is what it is. And Steve, this is there's something working here. Damn, we're spending so much time in Smollett. But there's something uh, <laughs> that's, that's working here. And that is, he said, I love America, right? He yeah. wanted to assimilate so much into the American life that he assumed some American traits in looking down at the Godfather, looking down at, at Italians who are in the mob. And only now is he coming to beg for justice. But, in, but before then, he didn't want to have anything to do with Vito, except to ask his wife to be godmother to his, his child, right? And that was maybe a culture thing. Like, hey, you got to ask uh, just in case, blah, blah, blah. We don't know the full connection other than Yeah, we that. don't know the story. Right, yeah. other than that. And so it's just like this. So maybe this guy was kind of thinking he could cherry pick his connection or his involvement as long as it served him, just like sometimes America does. So it's just very interesting the levels that this is working on uh, more than just the monologue of what's actually happening between these two men. Well. And I think he's still using American tactics, which is he yep. thinks I can pay this guy money. Right. It's transactional. Right. I'm going to give you money and you're going to give me service. Right. And what Vito Corleone is like, no, no, this isn't, this is a relationship. Yeah. I don't do stuff for money. Now you come to me and you say, Don Corleone, give me justice. But you don't ask for respect. You don't offer friendship. You don't even think to call me Godfather. Instead, you come into my house on the day my daughter's to be married and you ask me to do murder for money. Then he says, I ask you for justice. No, no. 
your daughter is still alive. That's not that's not justice, you know. Um, by the way, Brando was really impressed with the guy playing Bonacera. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, must, that's great. Um, and he's great. He, yeah. he and, and and this guy, this just this was an open call for actors. Huh. Coppola always wants. He says he always wants to do open calls mm-hmm. because there's these people out there that you would never see. You know, because yeah. they they don't. This guy doesn't look like someone's going to have a movie agent and mm-hmm. someone to be representing him. He's a theater actor, and he came to an open call. I get in trouble for saying this all the time, but people revere actors too much. There are many, many actors who never get the opportunity, who never get the shot, who never have things lined up for them. That could be just as great as any of your favorite actors. The, oh, yeah. the country, the world is full of them. So when we start to revere too much what an actor says or does or whatever, um, I always bristle at that, which is why some of the streaming stuff that's happening now, maybe some of these salaries will start to come down and maybe a little more humility starts to creep into the situation a bit and we get a little more of the um, openness to other talents getting a shot at things and showing people that there are plenty of actors of multiple walks of life, color and gender, who can do what you've already seen the great ones do. They just never had the opportunity. There's a whole other conversation. We're Mm. not going to have it, but there's a lot of discussion today about the illusion of the meritocracy, Mm. that we have this belief that the best people rise to the top. If someone's rich and successful, they're rich and successful because they are the best. Yeah. You know, if someone's a famous actor, they're famous because they're best. And it's like, they're, they might be great, but there are all these circumstances, many of which are just luck, yeah. that led them to be in the place where they could have those opportunities. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Might you be just born to the right family, mm-hmm. you know, or the right race or the right, you know, in the right community right. to have the resources to become what they became. Yep. And other people might have done even better. And we see, by the way, we have uh, Sonny, we have James Conn in the scene, and we have Duvall. Uh, Coppola wanted Duvall from the beginning. Mm. The studio said no. He had to audition a whole bunch of people, and finally Coppola broke him down and got Duvall. <laughs> what an eye for talent this guy had. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think we already mentioned that James Caan went to college with Coppola. Yeah. That's how he knew James Caan. Yeah. Um, we mentioned that in our discussion of, of Francis in our last episode. Yes. So then Bonacera still doesn't want to take the hint. He says, how much should I pay you? Mm. Mm. And you see the reaction yeah. on Brando's face. Oh. Bonacera. Bonacera. What have I ever done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? If you'd come to me in friendship, then the scum that ruined your daughter would be suffering this very day. And if by chance an honest man like yourself should make enemies, then he would become my enemies. And then they would fear you. I love that moment, man. Because when when you when watch this movie after you've seen part two, it's really interesting to watch the chilling uh, moments of menace that Brando is able to call upon for Vito. You realize, because like when you watch the movie, you fall in love with Vito Corleone. He's a man of principle. Yeah. No drugs. Yeah. Loves his family. Even shames Sonny later on in, in, in the same office at this at this wedding, you know, which is the man who doesn't take care of his family is no kind of man. He has principles. Um, and I imagine he probably never even cheated on his wife. He's got this no, kind of vibe of to not. him that is very principled and you love and respect him. 
but he was also able to maintain what he was able to maintain and build what he built because he has that uh, gear within him that is truly menacing and unsettling. I'll tell you that I wasn't going to mention this till much later, but mm. I'll tell you the thing that was the real biggest revelation to me this time mm. that I just never saw to this level before is Vito Corleone's heart. Yeah. His kindness, mm -hmm. his gentleness, his understanding of humans yep. and Michael's lack yep. of that. That's the whole tragedy is Michael's yeah. lack of compassion. He could have been as great, if not better than his dad, but his lack of compassion is what is always his Achilles heel. And, and I, I knew that before, but this time, man, I just, there's so much. And even in the scene, you can see his kindness. Yep. Along with his scariness. Right. You know, right. they're right there. Yeah. And the moment, the moment of Bonacera saying, be my friend, like you could see <laughs> what it costs him, you know? And I love Brando's reaction, like a jilted lover that he's trying <laughs> to win back. It's just, uh, I don't know. And then he kisses, <laughs> and then he puts his finger out or a hand out for him to kiss the ring. And oh, yep. it's brilliant. It's such a brilliant. See, he doesn't have to throw his weight around. He just speaks to him calmly. And then he then, then even plays upon his like, um, I don't know, just plays upon him emotionally. Like you said, he knows human beings and he knows how yeah. to play Bonacero. So Bonacero will do what's right. That's great. Someday. And that day may never come. I'll call upon you to do a service for me. And this is what I love too: is it's not tra it's non-transactional. Right. It's not I give you money and you do this thing. It's relationship oriented. Yep. yep. We now have a relationship. Right. You know, we're friends. Um, we're friends. I'm your godfather. Yeah. Until that day, accept this justice as a gift on my daughter's wedding day. Which is a Maybe. tradition amongst Italians. Yeah. That the at least back then, right? There's the, the father you could go into and request something of the godfather of that time and ask for something. And they could not refuse you because it was tradition. I mean, I only know that because of this movie, mm. but I'm assuming that it's based on real stuff. Mm -hmm. And then we hear him kind of give his orders. Give this to uh, Clemenza. I want reliable people, people that aren't going to be carried away. I mean, we're not murderers, in spite of what this undertaker says. <laughs> and right to see so he knows how to play the undertaker but he also knows the undertaker is is beneath him in that way but he you know and it also mentions luca brasi for the first time mm. oh that's right because luca is here to see him yep and then we have this hard cut from this quiet dark slow paced <laughs> space to the wedding yeah So the first scene is amazing. I think the wedding is where you see why only Francis Ford Coppola could have directed this movie. You know, because this is an Italian wedding. Yeah. This yeah. isn't my version of what I think an Italian wedding might look like. Right. This is an Italian wedding. Um, it was shot on Staten Island. <laughs> um, the idea for the Corleone compound, what they were modeling after, was the Kennedy compound. That makes so much sense. Yeah. So much sense. Uh, yeah, Dean Tavalaris, who he will later work with on all the Godfather movies and Apocalypse Now, pretty unknown um, production designer. He's the production designer on the film. There's sort of an old-fashioned, grainy, homey film look. That's what mm. Gordon Willis saw immediately when he saw New York in the 40s. It's very gold. Yeah. It's very, uh, feels old-fashioned. Brown. Yeah. Brown, yeah. 
and it's time to have the wedding pictures with the family. And what does Vito say? Where's Michael? I'm not taking the picture without Michael. Yep. And then we go out front and there's some people taking down license plate numbers. Coppola had, like as I said, he had this notebook. And one of the things he had was um, how the people were dancing and little vignettes and little things that would happen at weddings that aren't in the book. Uh, and one of them is these people, uh, Clemenza and Tessio, Abe Vigoda, and oh, I don't have Clemenza's name right in front of me, uh, uh, Richard Castellano. Um, and they are, again, characters like we've never seen in a movie before. Abe Vigoda, another guy from The Open Call. What? Wow. Yeah. And he has a face. I mean, he's yeah. just uh, so great. Does he get Barney Miller off Godfather? Damn, oh, totally. I never thought about that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we see Clemenza drink from a pitcher of wine. <laughs> um, we see sandwiches getting thrown around, which again, that was something that happened at weddings from Coppola's family. Yeah. Um, we see Sonny, uh, James Conn, talking to his wife. We obviously see some tension there. We see the moment, which it's all the little moments. It's the little girl dancing on Tessio's feet. Yeah. yeah. I just love that. And and this is the thing. If if you cut that out of the movie, would anyone know? No. Right. Right. And yet does that seem like just completely grounded in reality? Yes. Yeah. And do you like Tessio from seeing that moment? 100%. Nearly. Uh, and just to, as to juxtapose, do you like that young kid that's on a Clemenza's uh, employ? From the beginning you do not. His uh, interactions when he grows past and I try to touch Clemenza's cheek and take, he's like, do your job. And then when he's getting the sandwiches thrown at him and he's like, oh, you stupid jerk. And then later when he's looking at the money going into the kitty or the dowry for uh, for uh, uh, for Connie and he's just like, hold on, if this was somebody else's wedding. So already you know what's what is going to happen later on with this guy where he calls in sick. Uh, you know what that this dude is. And like you said, Steve, no exposition. Just seeing the scenes, you get an idea of this, this kid's character so that when he's used later as a person who, tr- who set up someone to die, uh, the payment comes uh, in full because uh, he's a, a shit heel from the beginning. So, so this is, uh, uh, the character is Polly. Yeah, Paul. And, uh, and and here's a little story that I didn't know about this guy. Oh, so uh, we're going to talk a lot. We'll get into how Al Pacino got cast. Mm. Needless to say, this is another person that Coppola had to fight for, had to fight for. This is the toughest battle was to get Al Pacino to play Michael. Yes. Every single actor you can think of, and I'll get to them in a minute, um, was brought in. One of the actors that was brought in for Al Pacino was, or for Michael, was Robert De Niro. Yes. Robert De Niro comes to audition for him. Coppola really likes De Niro, but doesn't think he's quite right for Michael. So he casts him as Polly. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. I never wow. knew this. Um, and at the time, Al Pacino was supposed to be in a movie called The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight. Right. And when a, when they finally cast him and Paramount agreed to him, Al Pacino stepped off the movie. You know who took this part in The Gang Who Couldn't Shoot Straight? Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro, wow. and that's why he's not playing Polly, and so, so, and that is why he gets to play Vito Corleone in The Godfather too. Wow, what a difference! I never knew that. Oof, what a difference, right? The guy they chose is so perfect for it. I can't imagine Robert De Niro doing that part. Wow. Well, what a 
Yeah, I mean, what a waste yeah. that would be of De Niro. True, very true. We see Luca Brazzi, who's practicing, <laughs> practicing his speech. Don Corleone, I am honored and grateful that you have invited me to your home. Sonny heads out front. I love the way James Conn, even the way he walks, mm-hmm. you get a sense of his character. He's a sweat. He's he's a penis in a suit, man. He just like he is all macho. <laughs> he is all macho cock slamming into things, trying to <laughs> penetrate them for sure. I was going to say this later, but it's funny you mentioned that. Do you remember one of the sensational racy things that's in the book that's not in the movie? No, the size isn't it the size of his penis. Yes, well, it is. It is, a, it is yes. in the movie. Yes, it is in the movie. Right. It's a gesture that's coming up where we see his wife. They do. John and I both did the gesture. Yeah. So you all could see it. The wife going bigger, bigger, biggest. Uh, yeah. Sonny yeah. is well hung. Well and down, which is why I can walk that way. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes out and, you know, goes after the guys that are taking down license plates. They flash the FBI badges. He spits. He's, there's, a, you know, reporters, t- photographers, paparazzi taking pictures. He grabs a camera, breaks it. Clemenza ha- and Polly have to hold him back. And then yeah. he just, with disdain, throws money down to pay for the camera. I will say this, man. I mean, uh, as much as I would love to be Michael, I have a lot of similarities with Sonny. Uh, certainly as a young man and at times even as an older man now. The, those those moments, I, I totally relate to Sonny. Uh, the spinning in authority, the, the get, losing a temper, then throwing some money at him. Like I could see, I felt connections to that character as a young child, the first or a young teenager, the first time I saw it. I, I, I hope you take it, this in the way I intended. <laughs> I, I wouldn't cast you as Michael. I would definitely cast you as Sonny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I'd cast you as Vito. Oh, yeah. I think I'm getting to be Vito as I get older, but certainly uh, Sonny was my in my 20s, absolutely. So I, I think I you would be wasted as Michael. You know, I think you would be I, so I, I, much more. Yeah, I, I'd be terrible as Michael, but my brother Michael is mm. a perfect Michael. This is mm. why the film resonates with our family so much. It's our Christmas tradition. All of us, like my sister Linda is Connie. My mom is who she was, just like the Godfather's mom. My dad, in our eyes, was like the Godfather. You know, is that it, there's a, so many similarities. Plus, you know, we're the son of we're the, we're the children of immigrants. My parents are immigrants. Like, it, there's so much about this movie that has connections with the Roca family. Uh, and mm. it's why we watched it so many, so many times and why we loved it as much as we did. And Sonny is certainly who I was, you know, passionate hothead. You know, <laughs> after I after I stopped getting beat up, I became. Uh, he's a he's a lot of a lot. And, and it's <laughs> it so funny. Is. <laughs> what's so funny is that he's you see what's problematic about him. Yeah. But you really like him. You do. You can't. You know, he's so charismatic. Mm-hmm. Um, we have another scene where another supplicant comes to the dawn. And this is, you know, the baker who's trying to get his Enzo. girl. Enzo, yeah, back, who's, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, but he's doing another favor, and we hear about the cake, and but, then, yes, but, go ahead. But it does matter, because the person he is trying to yes. to lobby for is a person who will later help Michael uh, when they try to kill Vito in the hospital. So it all yes. connects, you know, and it's really great. And, and the guy playing Enzo is fantastic. Yeah, really good. And then Michael and Kay show up, Al Pacino and Diane Keaton. Hmm. Um, he's in uniform, which is very important. And the first thing they walk by is Luca Brazzi, who's talking to himself. Don Carlone, I am honored and grateful that you have invited me to your home. And by the way, that's Lenny Montana. He's a professional rest- wrestler, yes, not an actor. Yes, he is. And here's what's interesting. So he was genuinely frazzled yep. around Marlon Brando. Mm-hmm. Really did have trouble saying this stuff. 
And so the idea of him, they shot the scene in the office first. And that's what gives Coppola the idea to have him practicing the speech later at the oh. wedding, before at the wedding. That's perfect. Because it was shot in the opposite order. And I wouldn't be surprised if Coppola doesn't let the kids run through to kind of try to mess with Luca. That so, is exactly what he did. Yeah, of course. That makes so much sense just to see what can happen and what his reaction might be. Oh. Well, because well, Coppola likes real stuff. Yeah. You know, that's why he hands Marlon Brando the cat. That's why he likes to go shoot in weather. If it's raining, if it's snowing, if it's windy, if it's a yeah. freaking hurricane in Apocalypse Now, he's like, let's go shoot in it. He likes those random elements because mm -hmm. they make things real. Yeah. Um, oh no. That man over there is talking to himself. See that scary guy over there? He's a very scary guy. Well, who is he? What's his name? His name is Luca Brasi. He helps my father out sometimes. I hinted at it before. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about casting Al Pacino. Okay. So um, Diane Keaton was cast right from the beginning. And mm -hmm. the reason Coppola picked her was he felt that Kay was the most straight, boring character in the whole story. <laughs> and yeah. so he wanted to pick an actor that was really quirky and odd and very much herself. And that is Diane Keaton. Yep. And this is the beginning of her amazing career, too. Yep. Um, and he wanted Al Pacino from the beginning. He'd seen him on, in some theater. He thought, this is the guy I want. Brought them to, to Paramount. And they said, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to give the star of the movie to to not only an unknown, but a short, dark-haired, yeah. very ethnic-looking unknown. They say, we want Robert Redford. Yep. And they want a, <laughs> a Adonis to play an Italian. It's just so funny. Not not that you can't have blonde, blue-eyed Italians, of course, and or, or light-skinned Italians, but for the film that he was making, had to feel that authenticity from moment one, from second one, and Michael radiates that so much more than Robert Redford would, yeah. He brings Al Pacino to L.A., they do a screen test, mm -hmm. Paramount sees it, hates it, we're never casting this guy. Bring in other people. So they auditioned just all of them. Every actor you can think of came in for this, including Dustin Hoffman, mm -hmm. Martin Sheen. And the one that the studio finally said that they agreed to was James Caan. <laughs> James Caan's going to play Michael. <laughs> so they hire somebody else, uh, Carmine uh, Caridi, I think is how you say his last yeah. name. Uh, and he's going to play Sonny. James Caan's going to play Michael. But Coppola doesn't agree to this. And every time he brings in new actors, he brings Al back. Yeah. So every time they're watching, okay, I'm going to show you the latest screen test. Here's Dustin Hoffman. I got one more guy to show you after Dustin Hoffman. And the studio goes, what? We already said no to this guy. And then he did it again. And yeah. then he did it again. And he just kept bringing him back. The person who was cutting the screen tests is Marsha Lucas. Oh. Marsha Lucas, George Lucas's wife, is yep. cutting them. And, he, and, and Coppola goes to Marsha and says, look, you've looked at all these screen tests. Who should I cast? She's like, you got to cast Al. Yeah. There's no question about it. It's hands down Al Pacino has to play this part. He goes to Diane Keaton. Diane, you have acted in screen tests with all of these people. Who should I cast? She said, you have to cast Al. Like there's no, again, no question. Finally, after beating at Paramount over and over again, as he's done in all of these mm -hmm. things, mm -hmm. Paramount finally backs down and agrees to cast Al. And that means the guy they have cast to play Sonny can't be him because he's like, 12 inches taller than Al Pacino. Yeah, yeah. James Conn's a little bit shorter. And so James Conn goes back to be sunny. 
And that works out. And so and the thing is, that's, this is why it's incredible to talk about all the stuff around the movie as well as the movie. Because if you don't get Coppola at this stage in his career, when he's still young, when he's still trying to prove something, when he's got the ego, which he'll always, he'll always have for the rest of his life, but like the cockiness, the, 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 the bullheaded determination that yeah. he's right, this film doesn't end up being the classic that it is, and the second film as well. They don't end up being the classics that they are that reverberate through the world of uh, cinephiles, through the, through the world of film, without Coppola in this time, at this moment, willing, as a younger director, to fight the studio, to challenge the studio, to push the studio. Plus, we're in the 70s when studios were more open to the auteur stuff, you know? And I sometimes forget, Steve, you know, when we're desperate to pay bills or whatever, like you forget that sometimes fighting for the artistic integrity of something does matter. And you have to risk certain things. Of course. And in the end, the payoff might be worth it. You may not see it in your lifetime, but the payoff is worth it in the end if you're following the correct creative instincts you know i i think i think two things because i i mean obviously i believe that fighting to make things the right way matters i mean you've mm -hmm. watched me you've known me long enough there is i have i can be extremely stubborn mm. over certain things yeah. um uh i also think that and and i think you know we wouldn't get citizen king you don't get lawrence of Arabia, yeah. you don't get these great films without really stubborn people who said you know you know, or any, all the directors we talked about, Kubrick, Ridley Scott, they've all are people that said, no, this yeah. is not good enough. Absolutely. But I also think that there are a whole bunch of people who are really stubborn who we never heard from again. Yeah, right. Because exactly. they lost the bet. <laughs> you know, Coppola happened to win the bet. Yeah. You know, he, he and this is the thing. This came up because we just did our whole, you know, episode just on Francis Ford Coppola mm. is that. I th but here's what I really had an epiphany about it is that we're just saying that he likes weather, he likes the cat, he likes the variations to get the best work out of his actors. Yeah, I think Coppola needs conflict to get the best work out of himself. Great point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he thrives in situations where he is battling, yeah. constantly battling to make it happen. That's a good point. That's where he's his best. The other thing I think is I totally think that they picked the wrong freaking scene to do a screen test with. <laughs> because because this is the thing, is the power of Al Pacino's performance is his quietness. Yeah. And so if you're a studio and you don't really understand that, what you would see, particularly in this scene, is how quiet and, and small his performance is. Yeah. Is that I think they should have done the scene where he said... I'm the one who's going to kill Salazzo. Mm -hmm. That's a much more dynamic scene. Yeah. And you could see many more layers. But that also requires know. like four or five other actors in the room. Or That's a fair point. Yeah, no, four That's or five. a fair point. That's the thing that, yeah. But uh, you can see these online. They're on YouTube. For anybody who's listening to us and hasn't watched any of these, you can watch some of these auditions on YouTube uh, for The Godfather. They've posted them, which are just mind-blowing to watch sometimes. And a lot of them. I mean, these are great actors. Yes, they are. Yes, yeah. they are. You look terrific. My brother Tom Hagen is oh, Kay Adams. How do you do? And she asks about, how is this your brother? And he tells a story about, basically, he was a kid on the street that Sonny found, mm -hmm. and he got adopted by the family. He's a good lawyer. Not a Sicilian, but I think he's going to be consigliere. What's that? That's um, like a counselor, an advisor. Very important to the family. Luca Brazzi and the Godfather. <laughs> we hinted at it before. 
I am honored and grateful that you have invited me to your daughter's wedding. On the day of your daughter's wedding. What's so funny is they're setting up this guy that is supposed to be the scariest guy in the entire movie. And yet you love him. Yeah. In this scene. Him stumbling over his words. And I love the like, and I hope that the first child will be a masculine child. <laughs> I I love the ending. Don Corleone. He doesn't even say Corleone. He says, Don Corleone, I'm going to leave you now because I know you're a busy man. <laughs> it's just like that. There's not even a hint of like real emotional connection for him. It's just like he's honored that he was even asked to be at the wedding. Yeah. So he stumbles with this like totally, you know, un, uh, nervous uh, uh, thing. And this is a man of of incredible reputation as a killer yeah. uh, for the family. So, you know, for him to be shaken to his core, meeting, it's like meeting, it's like probably a regular actor meeting meeting Marlon Brando. You're like, you know. One of the things Coppola says over and over again is, how do I get the audience to understand a thing without telling them? Again, this is no exposition. Well, having this huge man who's supposed to be really scary be totally not only intimidated, but grateful to be in the presence and at the wedding of this other man makes us understand something about Vito Corleone through his behavior. Uh, We're back out of the wedding and the bride and groom are dancing. We should say that the bride, of course, is Coppola's sister, Talia Shire. Um, She wanted the part from the beginning. Coppola was against it. Mm -hmm. Here's what he said. And this is, and I'm not saying this isn't true, and I'm not saying that Ty Shire is not a beautiful woman, but I am saying is that often when you listen to the stories that people tell about things, mm-hmm. that is the story they told. It isn't necessarily the whole story. He said he was against it because he thought she was too beautiful to play the part. <laughs> and that Connie should be someone that is unattractive and what? is only being married because she's the daughter of the Don. Oh my gosh. And that's just one where I went, I think there's more story there. What do you think? What do you th- what's your feeling? What are you thinking? I don't I, I really don't have an I don't have an answer. Mm-hmm. I just that one it's like there's another one. We'll come to it. Is that because I watched the commentary, listen to the commentary, because I, I read the notebook, I, I heard there was just recently a fresh air interview with Coppola that I listened to. He mm-hmm. told the same story over and over again. And it has to do with Clemenza making tomato sauce and later on when they're going to the mattresses. Oh yeah. And he says that this is what I learned from Mario Puzo. He said he learned never to hang out with mobsters, to only do research, stay away from them. He said he learned to use personal things from his life because mm-hmm. Mario Puzo loses a lot of personal things, which we'll get to some of them. Yeah. And he also, and then he tells this story. And I had written the scene where he said, you brown some garlic in the pan. And Mario said, Francis, gangsters don't brown, they fry. <laughs> and it's like... Why I literally hold heard Coppola tell that story five times. Yeah, and I'm just going. And to me, it's such a thin story that I think there was way more conflict between Mario Puzo and Coppola than he is letting out. <laughs> I have no evidence for this whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was a long digression. <laughs> I love the moment where Mom comes up and sings at the microphone. Oh yeah. And then the old guy comes up and sings. And and by the way, it's uh, Carmine Coppola is 
uh, come up is conducting all this music. This is his music. And there's just a feeling of like, this is a real Italian wedding. And yeah. it's in Italian. We know that the old guy is singing some kind of racy something or other. <laughs> yeah. You can tell and everyone's laughing. Yeah. Oh, it's great. <laughs> and Coppola insisted that he wanted a band that could really play rather than actors pretending to be a band. Yeah. And I, I want people to remember this whole seek everything in the wedding and juxtapose it later to Nevada in Godfather Part Two. That band, that band that doesn't know any Italian music, that band that's at what this is Michael changing or ingratiating himself further into America in Godfather Two. And the simple differences between the bands are those things that a director, a great director pays attention to as symbolic, you know, but doesn't call attention to it, just hopes you'll catch it uh, in, in when you're watching the movies. Well, okay. and this is the thing. Of, I think this wedding scene, which is really long. I mean, yeah. obviously, we're spending a ton of time talking about it, but it is a really, really long scene. But by the end of it, you feel part of this family. You know, you know? And, and you know everybody. Yep. You know everybody's place in the hierarchy. You know pretty much all the main characters' personalities Mm-hmm. And the connections that they all have with each other. It, it's a remarkable, remarkable. And, and the thing is, is it a really long sequence? Totally. Mm-hmm. Is it boring? Not even a tiny bit. Nope. Uh, Sonny goes off with the bridesmaid. <laughs> um, and then we get screams, because who is showing up but Johnny Fontaine. What is that outside? And and this is, of course, the rumored to be based on Frank Sinatra guy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who don't know the story, this is supposed to be Sinatra. And Sinatra was super pissed at uh, Puzo. Apparently, uh, Sinatra was eating one time and Puzo, after the book had become a success uh, and uh, the movie had come out, he came up to try to shake Frank's hand. And Frank would not look up from his food and said, get the fuck away from me, basically, because... Basically, he based this on the from here to eternity story of Frank at this time, right before he got from here to eternity a few years before his music had stopped selling. The Bobby Soxers weren't coming. His voice, he was singing songs with dogs to try to sell like it was a bad time and he was suicidal and uh, he almost killed himself. Uh, His manager found him when he turned the gas on and put his head in the oven and Ava and he was dating Ava Gardner, which was a tumultuous relationship. And it was Ava who called the studio. I think it was Harry Cohn, who was the head of the studio, or is it Roy Cohn? One of the. It was Harry Cohn, and said to him, "You got to cast Frank." He did. The studio did not want to cast Frank in no way, shape, or form. Sinatra was was poisoned, uh, and uh, it was Ava Gardner who put herself on the line to get Frank Sinatra cast in From Here to Eternity, which of course ended up winning him an Oscar, and it was a rebirth, a renaissance of Sinatra, which led him into the capital years and success forever after and so this is the correlation to what you see even though he kind of looks like uh, a dean martin it's more the or tony bennett it's more the correlation to sinatra here who is italian by the way um and has some rumored yeah rumored connections to mob ties yes of course i'm not saying anything i don't i know i don't want to get in trouble just in case anyone's listening who might put us in trouble (laughs) so allegedly here's what i didn't know so the actor playing johnny fontaine is al martino yeah and he got the Albert Ruddy hired him with the part. He's a, you know, a, a club singer and fairly well known, but not a big star. Right. And then when Coppola got hired, he dumped Al Martino because he oh. wanted Vic Damone to play the part. <laughs> 
And so Vic DeBone comes in, and this is, look, this is what it says on Wikipedia. So I never heard this story before, but this on Wikipedia, it says that Martino went to his godfather, Russell Buffalino. Oh, and Buffalino put pressure on Al Ruddy, and they dumped Vic Damone and brought him back in. It just sounds so crazy that that could be true, but that's what <laughs> that's what Wikipedia says. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Mike, you never told me you knew Johnny Fontaine. Sure. You want to meet him? Huh? Oh, uh, sure. My father helped him with his career. For my father. He did. By the way, some of this part of the scene was shot at night. The the this conversation with Kay oh, really? and Michael is shot uh, uh, night for day. Wow. And I would never have known it. It's done really, really. And of course, it's because they're under huge time pressure. Yeah. They didn't have a lot of money and they had to get this stuff done. Well, when Johnny was first starting out, he was signed to this personal service contract with a big band leader. And as his career got better and better, he wanted to get out of it. Now, Johnny is my father's godson, and my father went to see this band leader, and he offered him $10,000 to let Johnny go. But the band leader said no. And I love the way Michael says this line. So the next day, my father went to see him, only this time with Luca Brazzi. And within an hour, he signed a release for a certified check of $1,000. How'd he do that? My father made him an offer he couldn't refuse. That is ranked as the second most memorable line in film history. What's the um, first? The first is, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. That totally makes sense. Totally. The third yes. is, I could have been a contender. Oh, yeah. Brando. So, And of course, it's probably Brando saying, I'm going to make him an offer again, reviews. Mm-hmm. Not, not uh, uh, Al Pacino saying right. it. But that means Brando has two out of the top three mm-hmm. best lines. Mm-hmm. He, this line comes from Mario Puzo's mom. Oh, an offer I can't refuse? I'll make you an offer. I'll make him an offer I can't refuse. Wow. There are several of the most memorable lines in this movie come from his mom. Wow. Yeah. Apparently, she was a lot of a person. <laughs> Luca Brazzi held a gun to his head. And my father assured him that either his brains or his signature would be on the contract. And this is, once again, another Sinatra connection. Because what later on happens with uh, Johnny Fontaine, he's like, I'm trying to get that part in the picture. That's the From Here to Eternity story. Right. This story is Sinatra when he ha- when he wanted to break away from, uh, I think it was Tommy Dorsey's band, I think. And uh, he wouldn't let him out because he just signed a five-year contract. And Sinatra wanted to go solo. So the rumor was that uh, Sinatra at this point, thanks to his mom, Dolly, who was in politics and understood, you know, the kind of connections that the uh, mob might have there in politics. She made friends with some people. They, of course, supported Sinatra. And at the time, apparently uh, some uh, people visited uh, and had him uh, (laughs) sign that contract to get Sinatra released so he could go. Uh, and be a solo artist. That's the rumor, right? Uh, did it happen Again, but that's we're the, not saying allegedly, anything. Allegedly. Like, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> um, and he says, and this is what's so interesting. He says to Kate, that's a true story. Mm-hmm. And she has a reaction. And he says, that's my family, Kate. It's not me. This is the whole movie. I yep. mean, at least for Michael's journey. Yeah. 
Because the other thing is, I don't think Michael later on would have told any of this story. Yeah. I'm not going to tell this story about his father threatening someone with murder to a, someone outside the family. Yeah. But this person who really genuinely, I think, does not want to be part of, doesn't want to be part of this. That's his whole plan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's part of him separating himself is that yeah. he does tell Kay. And this is where <laughs> having these actors like Robert Duvall, you could see in his face that he knows Sonny's with a girl. Right. You know, and what am I going to do and how am I going to handle this? Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> and then Fredo. <laughs> My brother Fredo, this is Kay Adams. Beautiful, soft, sweet, drunk Fredo. This is my brother Mike. Are you having a good time? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, this is your friend, huh? <laughs> it's a great introduction to his character. Yeah. And that he kisses Kay and, and, and says, and I love that he introduces Mike. This is my brother Mike. <laughs> it's so funny. Mm-hmm. Um, Coppola, Coppola saw him on a show off Broadway. That's how he got yeah, the part. Yeah. And we should say he has one of the most amazing and brief careers in film history. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Every film he was in, I think, was nominated for Best Picture. Mm -hmm. Every film. Is this Dog Day Afternoon, Godfather 2, and Deer Hunter. Deer Hunter. Yep. Yeah. And then he passed away. Yeah. If That's... you want to watch a great documentary on him, HBO did a documentary on him a few years ago. With uh, Meryl Streep involved in everybody, Pacino, everybody talking about how much they loved him because Meryl Streep was, I think they were in, they were in a relationship or they had gotten married, uh, and uh, they were together, and uh, you know he, she was there to nurse him up until his death, from oh. a, I think it was a brain tumor or brain aneurysm, something, something like, that. like that. Yeah, and it's sad because he's such an incredible actor. He's great. Um, Johnny is basically telling the story of woe that you just described. He wants to get this part and he's mm -hmm. weeping and broken. And Tom is trying to get Sonny who's having sex with this, uh, bridesmaid. And, uh, there's an opera singer singing at the wedding. That's Coppola's cousin. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and Johnny is totally broken down in front of Vito and says, oh, Godfather, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You can act like a man. What's the matter with you? You're going to act like a man? What's the matter with you? <laughs> What's up with that nonsense? I, it's so funny because Brando has been so constrained. Yeah. So quiet up to this point that this moment of slapping him and mocking him is just so funny. And I don't um, want people to get mad, but this is this is toxic masculinity for sure. But sure. it is also from that time, the tradition of that time. Of course. Crying was not something that was necessarily accepted amongst quote unquote real men. So yeah. Of course I mean of course like that is this is totally, totally real for the time. You spend time with your family? Sure I do. Good. Because a man that doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. Mario Puzo's mom said that. Wow. And it's and he's saying that as Sonny comes in the room after mm -hmm. he's had, you know, carnal relations with the woman who of course end up being the mother of uh of Andy Garcia in a Godfather three. So that's, that's the connection there. And uh, yeah, but he knows his, he knows that Sonny is a, a, a terrible fucking husband, but it's his firstborn, you know, in the tradition, he's not going to go after him too hard. Well, and it's funny watching it this time is the first time I caught that. I oh, never really? caught it before. Oh, wow. I was just paying attention to him talking to Johnny and it was only watching it this last time that I went, Oh, mm -hmm. he knows Sonny's sleeping around. He's yep. given the real message is going to his son. Yes, it is. Cause he l even looks back. 
before yeah. he says it. Never caught it before. Quick glance. I want you to rest well, and a month from now, this Hollywood big shot's going to give you what you want. Too late. They start shooting in a week. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. By the way, when he sends Johnny Fontaine out, an extra Coppola hate I never noticed this before, but an extra accidentally pops in a frame, realizes she's on camera and backs out. <laughs> and this is exactly the kind of thing that drives directors and editors nuts that yeah. nobody notices. Well, Lin Lindley will tell you stories of me stopping shows or stopping movies to show you extras overdoing it in scenes. And I go, how the fuck did you allow this to happen? Like, it's just... It drives me, there's nothing that drives me more nuts when I'm watching a movie than noticing an extra who's overdoing it to get attention. As if some casting director is going to go, you know that overactor I saw in that <laughs> yeah, scene? Exactly. I'm going to cast that person as the lead. And let's all, make them a star. Let's make them a star. I know they tried to uh, totally grab spotlight away from the people who actually had lines, but let's make them a star. They seem like <laughs> they understand it. It's the fucking dumbest I'll, I'll, thing ever, man. I'll tell you the worst ex extra I ever had on anything I ever directed uh, was my mom. Oh, so no. we do, when I did a we did a sitcom, Matt Garcia and I was our senior project or, or master's thesis at film school, and it's like a you know a traditional four camera sitcom, and we just needed a crowd to come in at the end of the show, and she is terrible. I know, mom, you're probably listening to this, and I love you. You're oh. an amazing person, but I would never cast you as an extra again. But again, only I'm, I'm noticing it. Only I'm <laughs> noticing it. I just wish I hadn't put her center in the frame. Like if I put her behind someone, it would have been better. The views um, of Steve Morris or Steve Morris is alone. <laughs> again, very sorry, mom. I love you. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, we see the giant cake that the baker has made. It's ridiculous. And, and then we hear, and this is so important. We hear about Car Carlo, the guy she's marrying, and Tom's like, well, so we're going to give him a big job. And he says, never. Give him a living, but never discuss the family business with him. Yeah, he's an outsider. He's an well, outsider. And I think Vito knows from the beginning that yeah. this guy is not to be trusted. Yeah, he's married into the family. Yeah. Yeah. But he's not going to say no to his daughter. So Yeah. yeah. And this is the first time, too, we hear about some guy named Salazzo that's yeah. waiting on an answer. We'll discuss him when you come back from California. When am I going to California? I want you to go tonight. I want you to talk to this movie, Big Shot, and settle this business for Johnny. Now, if there's nothing else, I'd like to go to my daughter's wedding. <laughs> Why does Michael pull Kay into the family photo? That's just because he loves her and he wants her to be a part of this. And I also think uh, it's a Coppola decision. Because Kay obviously represents America, white wasp America, and she is an innocent America, right? Even the line later on in the film when he says, oh, Michael, do you know how naive you sound? Senators and presidents don't have men killed. And he goes, really, Kay? Who sounds, who's the naive one here? You know, and one of my like, favorite lines in the whole movie, by the yeah, way. Yeah, because it speaks to what Coppola is trying to say, like this idea of, because remember, this is still we're still in the throes of Vietnam when this film comes out. So this idea oh, yeah. of American exceptionalism is getting decimated by the Vietnam war and getting exposed. All the systemic racism, systemic injustices are all being exposed uh, there for people to see through real events going on in the late sixties, early seventies uh, and beyond. And so this is what Kay represents this idea of America. Also what Michael wants to do. Michael wants to become American and less Italian. 
There are those children that exist in immigrant families or families of immigrants where they want to have less to do with their beginnings course, and yeah. want to assimilate into America more, essentially become a white version of their race. You know, and so that you see that all the time. Let me ask this question, a different question. Mm. Does Michael love Kay? I don't think Michael is capable of love as we would standardly know it. I think this is the thing. Michael is in no, at no point in any of the films, do you ever see a warm moment with Michael? Even when he's talking to his son about the drawing in Godfather two, there's not that extra connection that you would have seen Vito have with a young Michael or a young Sonny. There's just not that connection or a young Fredo, which we see in Godfather two, the connections he had with his kids. There's just not that warmth. And because Michael doesn't possess it. Michael is an introvert in that way. He is a standard introvert. Well, introverts can have love oh, sure, sure, and sure. warmth. Uh, I guess I, could, <laughs> I guess I say he's an extreme version of an introvert in that for him, everything is guarded, everything. And so he's not going to let out too much. Even when he finally tells Tom his feelings about him in Godfather 2 near the end of the movie, it is, it, it's a hard one journey. And yeah. even Tom says to him, I've always wanted to be thought of as a brother by you, Michael, which is mind blowing at the age that they're at and the amount of years they've spent together. Tom still doesn't know if Michael has accepted him as his brother. So that tells you like Michael keeps his feelings so hidden or he has none and no ability to convey them. So I think he loves her as much as he can conceive of the word love at this stage. When Apollonia dies, which is the first time Michael really kind of opens up his feelings, drops his guard, is a, he's a completely different person in Italy. I think that's the death of Michael. Michael's. I think it's the last. I think it's the death of his compassion. Well, that's right. Love. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. And I yeah. think I think he does love Apollonia. I think yes, that a is thousand percent loves see, Apollonia. I think he loves. I think he's. I think he's Bonacera. I think he's going. I believe in America. Yeah. And I think K is the symbol of the life he wants to have. Yes, yes. I think he's constructed a future in which he will be an American. Yep. And not a Corleone. Yeah, not a gangster, not a mob guy, none of that shit. Right. And with all of his discipline and all of his focus, he is committed to making that happen. And so he pulls mm -hmm. her into the picture. Right. And we find out later, he signed up for the war without telling his dad. Mm -hmm. He he makes his own decisions, you know, and this is what makes Michael Michael. Uh, and even later, when Vito's in the in the garden with him near the end of the movie, this movie, he says to him, you know, I, I never wanted this for you. I wanted another yeah. life for you. He respected that his son didn't want to be a member of the mafia, that he wanted to be something else, a governor or a senator or something like that. He respects that his son had had that dream, uh, but also feels a tragic, uh, feels tragedy around it because uh, the circumstances didn't allow him to do it. What, what's so interesting is I think we could speculate that if Vito doesn't get shot, that yeah. Michael might, he would have married Kay. Yeah. And he might very well have been a senator. He absolutely would have been the senator. Absolutely. And a lifelong I, senator. A lifelong senator. But I don't think he would have been happy there either. Maybe. Only, the only world in which I can conceive of him being happy is with Apollonia. Yeah. Yeah, fully happy, fully passionately happy. Yeah. Himself and free and, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I think he's trying to create an identity for himself. Yeah, yeah. That he could then inhabit. And it's ironically only in killing a police chief and killing the main rival of his family 
is he truly exposed his feelings are truly exposed for his father because i guess i should correct myself that there are moments of connection in the movie there are moments of tenderness when he's talking to his dad in the hospital yep. and mm-hmm. then with apollonia those are the moments of true connection and th- those all happen as after his father's life is threatened that's when it becomes real for michael and then all yep. of a sudden his his feelings are out there for everybody to see let's go to hollywood <laughs> We've managed to make it out of the opening sequence. (laughs) This sequence is so great and it's so peculiar. And part of what makes it so great is you actually have a movie star in Robert Duvall who we're following and he shows up at the studio, which is Waltz Pictures or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we meet Jack Waltz. (laughs) I love he's got the pipe and the smoky jacket and we're on the movie set. And I, I love every single thing about what Robert Duvall does in this sequence. He's so patient, man. Like a lawyer, yeah. like a good lawyer, you know? Well, and he's so willing, he's so unaffected yeah. by all the histrionics that Waltz is going to throw at him. Are you trying to muscle me? Absolutely now not. Look to me, you smooth-talking son of a bitch. Let me lay it on the line for you and your boss, whoever he is. Johnny Fontaine will never get that movie. I don't care how many Dago, Guinea, Wap, Greaseball, Goombas come out of the woodwork. Well, I'm, what does he say? I'm, he uh, says I'm German Irish. German Irish. Well, listen to me, my kraut make friend. <laughs> I was like, holy shit! And, and I love that Duvall. It doesn't. He's so above it. It just washes right over him. Yeah. I'm going to make so much trouble for you. You won't know what it is. Duvall's come a lawyer. I have not threatened. I know almost every big lawyer in New York. Who the hell are you? I have a special practice. I handle one client. Now you have my number. I'll wait for your call. And then I love. That he shakes his hand and says, "By the way, I admire your pictures very much." <laughs> <laughs> He's a great lawyer, man. No, there's no emotion to it. Just have to get the job done. Love well, it. So this is the thing that I thought of this time. It's like you have these two actors, in particular, in Duval and Pacino, mm. who will become make a reputation yep. as these hyperbolic, intense, loud, huge characters. And they are both playing these really restrained people yep. in this movie that made them both stars. That's a great point. You know? Yeah. And and I think part of it is that we know that they, ha- they have it in the tank and they're holding it in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then we get some more jazzy Hollywood music and we cut to this crazy mansion in the hill. All of this is second unit. Duval and the guy playing Waltz, whose name I don't have in front of me, they weren't there. This isn't them. Why don't you say you work for Corleone, Tom? I thought you were just some cheap two-bit hustler Johnny was running in trying to bluff me. I don't like to use his name unless it's really necessary. That man yeah. carries weight all the way yep. in the West Coast, Steve. Well, I love that there's a bartender at the pool. Yeah, that's, a, that's rich. Man, I want to have a pool and just have a bartender just in case I walk by. <laughs> to, you know, and I need a martini at the at the last minute. Uh, and we go and see the horse. Hey, uh, Six hundred thousand dollars on four hooks. I'll bet Russian Tsar never paid that kind of dough for a single horse. Six hundred thousand dollars, and he's not even going to race him. He's going to put him out to stud. And then it's dinner. Johnny Fontaine never gets that movie. And I love his reason, is that it'll make him a star. I'm going to run him out of the business. And let me tell you why. Johnny Fontaine ruined one of Walt's International's most valuable protégés. And then he tells this story about this young actress that he invested all this money in and all this time in. She was going to be a big star. And let me, I love this. 
And let me be even more frank. Just to show you that I'm not a hard-hearted man, that it's not all dollars and cents. She was beautiful. She was young. She was innocent. She was the greatest piece of ass I've ever had, and I've had them all over the world. (laughs) And what I love is Duvall just nothing. Yeah. (laughs) This guy's just doing all this stuff, and Duvall's just patiently listening. She threw it all away just to make me look ridiculous. And a man in my position can't afford to be made to look ridiculous. And he's literally yelling in Duvall's face at yeah. this point. And, and and it's funny. He he welcomed him in. He, he was very warm to him. He was charming to him. Mm-hmm. He's saying, like, can we negotiate? And then he ends just as insulting as he was at the movie studio. Yeah. Now you get the hell out of here. And if that Kumbar tries any rough stuff, you tell him I ain't no band leader. <laughs> because he knows that story, too. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that story. And oh. Duval again, smooth, says, Thank you for the dinner and a very pleasant evening. <laughs> and heads yep. out. Yep. Yep. And of course, Harry Cohn is, I mean, he's standing in for Harry Cohn and he's talking mm-hmm. about Ava Gardner. He's talking essentially about it. And in the extended version, which I'm glad they cut out, as soon as Duval leaves, you see a um, uh, an older what would you call it? An older headmistress or whatever, whatever they called them back then walk out with a girl who's like 14. Ugh, it's yeah. a very chilling scene. And then you realize, yeah, this is the kind of shit. That, and when you see Judy, the Judy Garland movie, there's inferences to that as well. And there's like, yeah, fuck man. There's so many dirty people that were in Hollywood back then. Mm-hmm. Might even be now, but still, yeah, it's a, it's an uncomfortable scene. And I'm glad they cut it out because you don't need yep. it. You get it. You get it. You move forward. Yeah. We've arrived at one of the most famous scenes in film history. It's morning. It's quiet. We hear the sound of crickets. We're looking at a wide shot of the mansion. Again, this is all shot second unit. Gordon Willis isn't here. We dissolve in and we hear the Godfather theme. Initially, this had really, really intense, scary music. And it didn't work. And Walter Murch had the idea that it needed to start smaller and Mm. quieter. So Walter Murch, great editor of all time. He didn't actually edit picture on this movie, edited sound only. And so he put in the crickets. And then he had the idea that instead of starting with this really scary music, Mm -hmm. to start with the Godfather theme. And then the scary music rises up as we go into the room. And you have both pieces of music playing at the same time, Mm -hmm. which is what gives it that dissonant, uncomfortable, grating sort of quality. We go from the romantic Godfather theme into this room. I, this is one of the most disturbing moments in film history for me. A thousand percent agree with you. A thousand percent agree with you. And it's supposed to be, right? Because it's a slow progression to this moment. We're in this beautiful bedroom. Waltz is asleep in his bed. The sheets are satin. He starts to stir. And you notice just something on the sheet that doesn't seem quite right. (laughs) And he moves. And the more he moves, the more you see that the sheets are stained. And then you go, wait, is that blood? And at that moment, he feels something strange. And he looks at his hand and sees his hand covered in blood. This, just this moment, before we get to the next moment, Mm -hmm. I think he's waking up going, am I? Is this my blood? 
Or, you know what I mean? Or is it someone else? A in young the girl's the young girl's blood, who's maybe her virginity. I took. I don't know, but yeah, he's oh, that virginity thought never occurred to me. Yeah, yeah, well, he's a sick yeah. son of a bitch. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what it is, is because you have much more. I'd seen that shot, the mm. cut scene, but I think that sounds like it was much more in your head. Yeah, I I never thought about that again, just because mm. like, well, that doesn't belong there. And then, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> this is not, not appropriate. <laughs> And then he slowly pulls back the sheet, and now we see it's not just a little blood. Yeah. It is a lot. He is bathed in blood. Yeah. And then he pulls the sheet back farther, and there is the horse's head. <laughs> this guy did some great screams. He did. And it's a great... Great cuts by Coppola, yes. you know, to convey as he moves out of the room. It's great cuts. Oh, ah, ah, <laughs> until yeah. he's out. It is really disturbing. By the way, in the book, the horse was like on the bedpost. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Coppola said he actually misread it as in the bed. Oh, And that's shit. how it ended up in the bed. It is a real horse's head. Oh. That is a dead horse. Yikes. And and of that. course we know that Coppola slaughtered a big bull in yeah, for real in Apocalypse Now, and so he got in trouble for this one too. And he, this was actually a horse that they got at the pet food factory. This was a horse that was going to be slaughtered anyway. Oh, okay. So they got this horse after the horse had already been slaughtered to make you know puppy chow, right? And um and they put it on dry ice, but it was hot on the set, and that's mm. a horse's head. This guy had to be in a bed with on a hot mm. set all day. Nasty. That is a na- acting that can be a nasty, nasty business. It's a nasty business, Mister Hobbs. Nasty business. <laughs> and then uh. from this, from this moment, we dissolve to a very serene-looking Don Corleone. Well, I, I don't know, Steve. To me, it's a great dissolve because he looks like he's savoring the screams of Waltz. I think he, it totally could be interpreted right. That way. He's just like. And then he's going into his conversation, which I think is great. Well, and I think what's so great about this is, again, we go back to, you know, the questions of what is the point of the scene? Why is this scene yeah. here? Why does it exist in the movie? Right. Why do we need to go to Hollywood? Why do we need Johnny Fontaine? We're, these aren't important characters in the film. Yeah. But you've met Vito Corleone and the family, and you've even been to some degree seduced by them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that you really like them. And now we go and see this unbelievably brutal thing. Yeah. So now when we come back to Vito Corleone, our feelings about him are much, much more complicated. Great point. Great point. Yeah. yeah. Um, because now we know what this guy is really capable of. Yeah. It's profound. And now we're hearing about Salazzo. Uh His business is narcotics. He has fields in Turkey where they grow the poppy. And in Sicily, he has the plants to process them into heroin. Now he needs cash. He needs protection from the police, for which he gives a piece of the action. And while this is happening, we see Salazzo kind of coming upstairs, and yep. so we're we're kind of linking the time of the meeting with the time now. Oh. And Vito asks his son. He asks Sonny, "What do you think?" There's a lot of money in that white powder. Then he asks Tom, who gives a much more complicated answer. Now we have the unions, we have the gambling, and they're the best things to have. But narcotics is a thing of the future. Uh, if we don't get a piece of that action, we risk everything we have. I mean, not now, but 10 years from now. And then Sonny turns to Vito and says, so what's your answer going to be, Pop? <laughs> and Vito does not answer. No. 
sitting behind uh, Marlon Brando in this shot is a bottle. And this is a bottle of anisette, which is, you know, an Italian liqueur. And Coppola made this bottle and he put the tape label on it himself because his uncles and all of his family, they always made their own anisette and that, that they always had a bottle that looked like this and they always labeled it with a piece of masking tape. Yeah. And so Coppola did this himself to make sure because that was correct. And how many people in this watching this movie are going to notice that detail? Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. No, no, I, I never noticed mm. it. Yeah. It, but, and this is the thing is this again is like only an Italian American director mm would do that and only Francis Ford Coppola would fight and do the extra work for that tiny little piece of authenticity. Yeah. By the way, Coppola still makes his own anisette. <laughs> um, now we have the scene with Salazzo. I need a man who has powerful friends. I need a million dollars in cash. I need Don Corleone, those politicians that you carry in your pocket, like so many nickels and dimes. This is Brando's first scene on the shoot. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the actor is Ali Terry, who, who spoke Sicilian. He's great, Ali Terry. He, he's so interesting in this scene. Mm -hmm. In the first year, your end should be three, four million dollars. And then it would go up. Now, what is the answers for the Italian family? My compliments. Because <laughs> Vito obviously has good information. Yeah. <laughs> Brando's so great in this scene. Why do you come to me? Why do I deserve this generosity? And then Salazzo insults him. If you consider a million dollars in cash, just finance, to salute, I'm calling What's the insult? See, it's, I think it's a compliment. Because he's saying to him, because Brando goes, Brando changes his face when he says that. It's mm -hmm. He takes it as an insult because he is, play, he is commenting on money mm. in, the, in the amount mm. Much like Bonacera did with the "How much should I pay you?" Oh, and so, I see to, what you're saying. so for for Brando to speak about money so openly, it's disrespectful, right? Mm. And so, so I mean, it's not Brando. I'm sorry for Vito to speak about it so openly. It's it's, it's disrespectful. So when he says it that way, if you watch uh, Brando, he stares at him for a minute, and then mm. does the whole thing and turns him and he turns him down in that moment. And that's the thing with Vito Corleone. You can't fuck up the meeting. You can't fuck up once because there are plenty of people who ask for an audience with Vito. But if you mess up once or he, or he, hit, or he senses that you're, a, you're not trustworthy or you're a bottom feeder or you're one of those people using him, uh, if he doesn't see the benefit of it, he cuts it immediately. And in that moment when he says, if you think of oh, 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 salut, you know, he's almost disrespecting him by, by almost making fun of the money a little bit. Uh, and, uh, you know, in that moment, it's, I think Vito goes, oh, yeah, I'm not working with this clown. So me. so it's funny because I interpreted it very differently, but, but mm -hmm. I definitely think you're right. Um, do you think that he would have taken the deal if this moment hadn't happened? I think he'd have considered the deal more if this moment hadn't happened. I think if he, if he felt this man was a man of respect, as a man who understood the way things work, I think he'd have uh, uh, had a, a little more uh, consideration for it. it would, he might not have said yes, you know, in acting, it's not no, almost not. Oh, it's not always booking the part; it's booking the room. And so, I think he didn't book the room and lost mm. the part. And mm. he could have had a shot at the part if he had booked the room, and if not this part, a part down the road. And so, I think this is where he loses him completely as a businessman or as a possible connection. Remember, he's all about relationships. 
relationships. So if he doesn't trust you, he's not going to be in a relationship with you. So it's, it's so funny because, again, we're going really slow, but this is The Godfather yeah. and this is, a, you know, one of the great films of all time. And this is why. Yeah. I don't think Salazzo intends to insult him. Mm. I think he mm. is saying, wow, if you can, you know, if you could just talk about a million dollars like that, man, well right. done. Well, it's because Salazzo's a bottom feeder. He's down at the bottom. He, he To him, a million dollars is like, holy shit. Yeah. But, but what I Vito, didn't see is which, nothing. But what I didn't see, which I actually think you're totally right, is that Vito takes that as an insult. Yeah. Like, why are you bringing up money like that? That's yeah. not because money's not important. 100% you're right. And I didn't see that before. Yeah. In my opinion, mm -hmm. Vito knew he was never going to take this deal before he walked in. Probably right. But he gave him the courtesy of the time yeah. because other people spoke for him and members of the five families, whatever. Yeah. Because if Vito really wanted to do a deal, someone saying something insulting to him wouldn't stop him. Right, you know like Bonacera, I mean? right? He made Bonacera come to him and eventually, yeah, you're right. That's a good point, he, Steve. Because he, he, he's going to do what's right for the family. Right. He's not He's not going to get emotionally involved no. in a thing. Sonny would, but he won't. Right, which um, Sonny does. I said that I would see you because I heard that you were a serious man to be treated with respect. But uh, I must say no to you. And I'll give you my reasons. It's true, I have a lot of friends in politics, but they wouldn't be friendly very long if they knew my business was drugs instead of gambling, which they regard as a, a harmless vice, but drugs is a dirty business. By the way, I had to say something to people that, because you'll never see this, but here's what's happened as John and I have been doing this, is that frequently I'm reading the lines of these, <laughs> of these characters, and most much of the time I will actually cut to Brando saying the line. Mm -hmm. But what none of you know, but I've been observing, is as I've been reading Brando's lines, John has been silently performing the part. <laughs> and it's been so awesome to see John do all the gestures and facial expressions for the line I am saying. I am, I, I even almost did the wipe. If you notice, he wipes Salazzo's pants. He wipes the knee of Salazzo's pants, which is another form of respect and disrespect at the same time. Well, he's very... Vito Corleone has an unbelievable understanding of people. Yes. You know, and yes. is very sensitive he's in never how wrong. he does those things. Yeah. And he's never wrong, Steve. Yeah. Never wrong. Absolutely. It, make, it doesn't make any difference to me what a man does for a living, I understand. But uh, your business is uh, a little dangerous. And then this is a key moment in the scene. Is Salazzo says... If you're worried about security for your million, that the Italians will guarantee it. And Sonny leans in and speaks when he never should and says... Oh, are you telling me that the Italians guarantee our investment? Vito... Look and gesture, because oh. Sonny has violated the rules, and Tom, and you can see Duval, Tom Hagen has the reaction. Yep, of like, oh no, and in that moment is the genesis of the idea of assassinating Vito. Yep, because Salazzo now sees that Sonny is down for it, so Salazzo, with the backing of Tatalia, and of course we find out later uh, Barzini, mm -hmm. uh, uh, is trying to kill the Godfather. So that Sonny takes over the family and they make a deal with Sonny and everybody benefits financially right. from the situation. So in that just that one moment, because Sonny, once again, a dick trying to penetrate everything, a dick trying to bust through everything, fucks, uh, almost kills his dad. Yep. Well, and what's interesting about this movie is there there are a few geniuses. Vito Corleone, obviously. Yes. Michael, obviously. Right. Salazzo and Barzini, also. A little bit. 
They uh, they are definitely yeah. people. Barzini that are, certainly. Yeah, but um, Tatali yeah, is well, a the, pimp. Tatali is a pimp. <laughs> um, and I love I love the way Vito settles it down. I have a sentimental weakness for my children, and I spoil them as you can see. They talk when they should listen. But anyway, Senor Sonotso, I know it's final, and I wish to congratulate you on your new business. I know you do very well, and good luck to you. Especially since your interests don't conflict with mine. Very respectful. He's so classy. Yes, he is. So something we should say is that Coppola was about to be fired throughout this whole film. Wow. Wow. And that the studio hated much of what they saw. And in particular, they hated this scene. Wow. They thought Brando was mumbling. They couldn't understand him. This was shot on a Tuesday. So the studio saw the dailies on Wednesday and he heard from them that they were very unhappy. And he also felt that he had spies, tr- mm. which he called traitors on the set, which is probably true <laughs> yeah. that there are people reporting back to Bob Evans and the heads of Paramount to make sure that this young director isn't messing anything up. Yeah. And so here's what, he, and this is why Coppola is smart. He went, they're never going to fire me in the middle of the week. You always fire a director over the weekend because you need time to replace them. Right. You fire them in the middle of the week, then someone's got to come in the next morning. That's not, you're not going to be ready. And so he said, I need to solidify my position by Friday. <laughs> First, he fires four people, the four people that he thinks are traitors. Wow. He reshoots this scene with Brando and Salazzo. Yeah. And what you're actually seeing is the second time they shot it. Oh, wow. And then he sends it to Paramount. And by this point, Paramount is like, okay, it's all right. Yeah. And he manages to stay on the shoot for another week. So he pulled a Kurtz, a Colonel Kurtz. He killed he the totally double agents. Did. He yep. killed the double agents and the uh, enemy uh, uh, enemy action dropped by a, a, a 50% in the region. Santino, what's the matter with you? I think your brain is going soft. From all that comedy you're playing with that young girl. Never tell anyone outside the family what you're thinking again. So great. Oh. And of course, Michael echoes that later when yep. he talks to Fredo in the Mo oh, Green yeah. situation, right? And even more chilling. See, Brando does it, or sorry, Vito does it from a place as a father to a son. Michael removes the relationship and is very chilling when he says it to Fredo. It's terrifying yes. when that happens later in the movie. Yes, it is. Tell Luca Brazzi to come in. I love that Luca Brazzi just sits in the frame. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> Such a presence. Yeah. And he says, basically, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go pretend that you're not happy here so you can find out what's going on with Salazza and the Tatalias. And then Luca Brasi moves out of frame. Yep. And by the way, the look at Luca Brasi's face, juxtapose that to the nervous guy at the wedding. This is a man about all business because now he's going to do a job. He knows what to do. He's very confident for the Godfather in that. Yeah. Um, And it's Christmas. And we are in front of a store and there's Michael and Kay and they're got some presents for everyone and it's kind of romantic. And you actually almost see Al Pacino kind of smiley. Yeah, 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 a little bit. Yeah. And what do you want for Christmas? Me? Oh, just you. Um, this is the very first shot they shot in the whole film. Wow. Yeah. And... Um, between that, we intercut with that with Luca getting ready. He puts on a bulletproof vest... Um, and we also have, uh, the Vito getting ready to go. He tells Fredo to get, tell Polly to get the car and we find out Polly called in sick. Son of a bitch. Yeah. Yeah. 
And Fredo's like, oh, he's a good guy. Fredo's very trusting. Yeah. Fredo's a terrible Don, man. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Oh my! Can you believe? Can you imagine ah, Don Fredo? That the the family would be uh, sunk within a, oh. a month. Um, and then we see Luca walking somewhere, and the tension is sort of building. And he goes into this bar, which was shot in a, a Art Deco hotel in New York. And he walks past. I love that he walks past as a gla- piece of glass, and etched into the glass is a fish, <laughs> because Luca Brazzi is going to end up sleeping with the fishes. Yep. Yep. And he sits down at this uh, at this bar, and there's the bartender, who's Bruno Titalia. And I love I love the way Lucas speaks. He says, you know, he's a gift of Scotch. It's pre-war, and Lucas says, "Ain't no big." <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love, ain't no big. And there's Salazzo. You know who I am? the Galoche. He says, "I need someone strong like you. I heard you're not happy with the Corleone family. Want to join me? Fifty thousand dollars to start." And he puts his hand out, but. He doesn't take his hand. That's the... Luca's an idiot for not taking the hand. That's the moment when Luca's dead. That's when they know. I think they were going to kill him anyway. Oh, I don't think... I think they were... I think they were gonna... I think they were suspect. And I think this is a meeting where they're gauging whether he's actually really unhappy with Corleone and wants Mm. to jump to the Italian family. It isn't until he doesn't take the hand. That's the sign to them that nope, this fucker isn't actually fully committed because Luca is so committed to Corleone that for him to take the hand of someone else would be such a violation to his ethics. So in that moment, I think they know he's not with them. And so they have the what they had talked about in case we don't think he's right, then we kill him right here. It's so interesting. This is what's so great about great movies is I think they, in my mind, they always intended on killing him. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah. But, but your interpretation makes perfect sense. That mm. totally could be what goes on because there is a very specific look from Bruno, which is sort of the, are we doing this look? Yep. yep. And he pulls out, uh, Luca pulls out a cigarette, Bruno goes to light it. And then there's this moment where he puts his hand down <laughs> and they, they pat his hand. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, something weird's about to happen. <laughs> and then Salazzo stabs that hand to the bar. <laughs> Something that uh, Coppola said, which I thought was really interesting, is he said, every murder needs a detail for you to remember. Mm-hmm. It has to be unique in some way. And as we go through, and there are obviously going to be a lot of murders, they all have a thing that makes them memorable. Some of yep. them more than one. And that stabbing hand and then the guy coming up behind with the garrote, that is memorable. Yeah. And it's very much what, like the descriptions in the book, that his face, his eyes bulge out, his face yeah. turns black. I remember that. And one thing that's interesting, to get his face to black, to, turn, to change color, they have this makeup that changes color when it gets wet. <laughs> so they put this stuff on and it's basically invisible. And then they had someone spraying a mist of water in his face yeah. that made his face get slowly darker as he's being choked. Wow. And he fights and he goes down past Bruno and we see that knife still stuck in his hand, still mm. stuck in the bar. And we see that we move back past that glass with the fish on it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is the first real, oh shit. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, you gotta have conflict, right? You, you, you once you set up the fact that it's Corleone and he's, he's got this power and this menace or whatever, that now you've got to set up the danger, the conflict. What's going to keep you cheering for Vito, cheering for the Corleones? You have to set up, you know, an equally dangerous um, antagonist that can go in many different directions. And so this is it, once they've set everything up and shown you what they can do. Now let's get into an, a, a setting up the antagonist. 
to these to this family. You know what's interesting that I didn't think of until you said it is mm-hmm. that there's all sorts of small conflicts in yes. character development, but until this moment, until the death of Luca, there's not a big conflict. Right. Right. You know what I mean? It's all like, what's going to happen with Michael? And is Johnny Fontaine going to get the part? And, who's right, this, right. you know, and oh, Sonny spoke up when he shouldn't have. And, right. you know, there's all these little things. They're all great and really right. interesting. But this is the moment where, like, the movie as a as a plot, as a story, really starts to drive forward. Yeah. We're actually back at the exact same store where we shot uh, Michael and Kay shopping, and it's on the same day. This is yeah. the first day of the shoot, and out comes Tom, and he's got a sled. And the first thing I thought, is, look at that sled, is like, that looks like Rosebud. <laughs> it might have been a reference. And there's Salazzo, and he says, yeah. Tom, let's talk. And Tom's just like, well, I don't have time. Uh, make time, conciliere. Get in the car. What are you worried about? If I wanted to kill you, you'd be dead already. And suddenly Tom looks around and there's those guys. Can you imagine that moment where someone says, get in a car Mm -hmm. and you go, I don't get in. And then you see the dudes. You know, what's ironic. It's the same moment that Tom is a part of later with Tessio. Oh, that's exactly right. It is exactly that moment. Yeah. Except worse because, you know, Tessio is going to die. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Exactly. He didn't die. Well, Tom thinks he's going to die. That's for sure. Yeah. We're (laughs) back at Genko olive oil and they're. Heading home, and Vito says, I want to buy some fruit. <sighs> One of the things, so this is what uh, Coppola wrote in his notebook, is that he, he this is, he was thinking about Hitchcock. Mm. And that Hitchcock was very important. You show all the details. Mm. That you see everything happening. It has to be super, super clear, which this is. And we see him, you know, go to the fruit guy. And it's you know, interesting that... He doesn't actually grab the fruit, but he points to what he wants. Mm-hmm. And we all know, of course, he's not paying for this fruit. Right, right. Um, and he knows and, he's going to get the best. Mm-hmm. He knows he's going to get the best fruit of whatever he picks out of that he wants. Yeah. And we see, you know, we're just on the street and there's fire in a garbage can. And we hear footsteps and there are these two guys coming around the corner. He spots them and he knows. Yep. He knows immediately. And, and I think if he's 10 years younger, he gets away. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. He almost makes it. He gets shot from behind, knocks that fruit over, and we're in a high angle. And the orange fruit against the dark street that spreads out from the high angle shot yeah. is so memorable. And again, it's the detail. Yeah. We You cannot not remember what happens in this moment. Also, Fredo. He yells for Fredo. Fredo! And Fredo jumps out of the car, fumbles the fucking gun, uh, and his father is shot right there against the yep. fender or front bumper of the car. Multiple shots in the back. And I, and I think if you're watching this movie for the first time, that guy's dead. Yes. You know? And Six so here's shots. Yeah. And here's the other reason that he was thinking of Hitchcock is Psycho. Get introduced to a main character kill the main character off yeah. at the end of act one. Now Vito doesn't actually die, right. but he's gone essentially from the movie. Mm-hmm. So our main character is suddenly disappeared. Like right. what, where's this movie going to go now? Right. Here's the other thing about this scene. So he and Gordon Willis made some rules, which I think is a really smart thing to do in terms of how you're going to approach a film. Mm-hmm. And their rule was they'd shoot it like a forties film mm-hmm. is that they're not, there's not going to be a zoom lens. There's not going to be a helicopter oh, shot. There's not going to, it's all going to be 
camera basically at eye level, very traditional, very simple. And so they get to this scene and he says, I want a high angle. I want top down. And Gordon Willis says, no, that totally violates our rules. We cannot have a top down shot unless there's somebody up there looking down that we're from their point of view. Whose point of view is this? And Coppola says, it's my point of view. <laughs> it's Orson Welles's point of view. I want to see the oranges. <laughs> That's true, because Orson uses the crane in Touch of Evil in that opening yeah. sequence. So, yeah. Well, and it, and it's like, I, I I stand by my first statement. It's really good when you're making a movie to come up with rules. This color represents this. This is how we shoot this. This is our lensing. <laughs> this is how we move the camera. And it's also really important to break the rules yeah. when you could get a great shot, which this is. And man, Fredo sitting down with that gun dangling from his finger, weeping uncontrollably, not even able to like help his father or go to his father he reverts back to being a child who's a lost yeah. something and he even instead of like call the cops or call the police or call the ambulance or whatever instead he just sits there and cries and he even screams baba as if he's a child trying to wake his father up from sleep like yeah. he cannot accept that his father might have just been killed in front of his eyes so his reaction is just to yell Papa so loudly at him to try to wake him up from what he thinks is his death. It's, it's so telling of who this character is, you know? Mm. Well, well, and this is, what, this is what makes this a great film. Yeah. There's no wasted moments. There's no unnecessary so shots. There's no characters that are weak. There's yeah. no performances that are weak. Like every single detail is worth spending time on. And people have often commented on the cinephiles, man, you guys actually will spend more time talking about a movie than the actual movie itself. Well, we are 45 minutes into The Godfather and we've spent two hours to get there. That's right. <laughs> and so the, uh, the there have been only two previous three-part episodes in the history of the cinephiles. The first was for Lawrence of Arabia. Yes. The second was for, for our incredible conversation about Black Panther. Guess what, folks? This is probably going to be our third. And I think right now with Vito Corleone near death, with Tom just grabbed off the street, Luca Brazzi dead, the entire Corleone family in disarray, I think it is time to end Part one of our exploration of Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. Um, as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on Facebook. Do a search for The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, on YouTube, on Spotify. And you can now subscribe to The Cinephiles through Audible and through Amazon. So if those are services you use, and one of the cool things on Audible, by the way, because I know you like giving us reviews, not only can you review The Cinephiles, you can review every single episode individually on Audible. And I think you should take the time to do that. And if you don't have the time to do that, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> Review the cinephiles on iTunes. It deserves five stars, and we would like to have you do that. You could support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where you can request a film we for us to do like Matt Korea did for The Godfather, you can go to cinephiles.net and buy or stream The Godfather and every other film we've ever done through Amazon Prime. If you want to reach me, you can do so at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how about you? You can always reach me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, and uh, if you want to go and watch some more of the stuff that I'm involved in, please go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, come and subscribe and see all the stuff we're doing there as well. John, I've been enjoying this conversation so much and I cannot wait 
to come back for part two of The Godfather next week on The Cinephiles. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.